Coco for the championship and the title. seen the dreams of an eight-year-old girl been playing tennis for a couple of years dedicating her life to the sport of tennis she's living that dream that's her father Corey mother candy they're having a good hug and all of them are crying 
She has her family there, her aunt. Now going to her coaches. What a moment. Nineteen years old. Her first major title. She has been in the championship match in Paris at the French Championship. You know what I love about her, though, is her humility. She's humble, she's got her feet on the ground. A lot of that credit goes to Corey and Candy. And, and she's gonna be number three in the world now. Number three in the world. In singles only and number one in the world in doubles. It's only a start. And she's 19 years old. This, to me, sets her up for the next five to 10 years as a player who can win many, many more majors because she can still improve. 100% agree with that statement you just made. I don't think there's a, there's no doubt in my mind that she's going to continue to be a contender, and I don't yeah. think it matters what surface she's on. And she she is the face of women's tennis right now. She is a superstar. Fans in the history of sport, right here in New York City. It's been a tournament of celebration, especially recognizing Billie Jean, when 50 years ago, the US Open followed your lead, and we became the first major sporting event in the world to offer equal prize money to men and women. Thank you, everyone, and we look forward to continuing a great tennis journey with you. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. And now, Arena, let's hear a few words from you. You have had an amazing season. You broke through in Australia, winning your first Grand Slam title. And like Brian said, you're going to be the new world number one on Monday. What are you most proud of in this terrific year that you're having? I didn't hear the question. What are you most proud of in this terrific year you're having? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you guys could have supported like this dude in the match. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm most proud that I was able to most of the times handle my emotions pretty well and uh, focus on myself, uh, not on the ranking. And I think, uh, yeah, I think this is the best thing about this year. You knew going into the final, the crowd was going to be on the American side, but you must have felt the love throughout these two weeks as well. Yeah, I felt all the love uh, through this uh, couple of weeks. Uh, I just want to say congrats, Coco, and I mean, you played unbelievable. Uh, congrats to you and your team. You guys, you guys deserve this title. Uh, yeah, many more to come, I'm pretty sure. I hope we're going to play many more finals. 
different results, probably. <laughs> no, anyway, congrats, you're amazing. Who do you want to share this moment with in your team, family back at home? Yeah. Um, Take a breath. Um, yeah, I just want to send um, a lot of love to my family. They've been awake and watching. <laughs> Sorry for this result. <laughs> it's so difficult, Arena. We know what, it, what it's like. Everybody's been in your position in the final. Who loses? It's so hard. But your team has been behind you the whole way. Yeah. Um, thank you, guys. <laughs> <laughs> they know they will be fired after the, after this tournament. <laughs> now, um, as always, we'll come back stronger, right? <laughs> Thank you for everything you're doing for me. I, um, I really appreciate it and I love you guys. <laughs> we have no doubt you'll come back stronger, Arena. And now on behalf of the USTA, Brian Hainline will present Arena with her trophy. And now let's hear from our champion, Coco Golf. Coco, you burst onto the scene about four years ago. A lot of expectations on your shoulders. What does it mean to win your first Grand Slam title on home soil? Oh my goodness. Uh... to me. Um, I feel like I'm a little bit in shock in this moment. Um, you know, that French Open loss was a heartbreak for me. Um, but I realized, you know, God puts you through tribulations and trials, and this makes this moment even more sweeter than I can imagine. We saw you say a prayer, get on your knees. You have a lot of faith. How important has that been through this journey for you? Oh, it's been so important. Um, you know, I don't pray for results. I just ask that, you know, I get the strength to give it my all. And whatever happens, happens. I'm so blessed in this life. So I'm just thankful for this moment. Like, I don't have any words for it, to be honest. Arena came out super strong today. Where did you find the belief to turn this match around? I don't know. I just knew that if I didn't give it my all, um, you know, I had no shot at winning. Arena's an incredible, incredible player. Uh, congratulations on the number one rank ranking. It's well-deserved. Um, I always uh, tell my team all the time that, you know, you're a really nice person behind, this, behind the scenes and the competitive and the fire that you bring to the court is something that makes sports better. So congratulations to you and your team for this result. What about your team? 
You had a great embrace with your mom and dad. They've been with you through thick and thin. Your brothers are back at home, your grandmother. What message do you have for all of them? Can I take the mic for this one? Sure. Thank you. Okay. Um, God. Well, thank you first to my parents. Uh, today was the first time I've ever seen my dad cry. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't want me to tell you all that. But he got caught in 4K. Uh, <laughs> you know, he thinks, he's a, he thinks he's so hard, but, you know, it's not. So thank you guys. I mean, you believed in me from the beginning. I've been coming to this tournament. My dad took me to this tournament, sitting right there watching Venus and Serena compete. So it's really incredible to be on this stage. Um, and obviously, huge thank you to my team, Stefan, Brad. Oh, yeah, Stefan's here. Oh, my God, he's here. Uh, Stefan, Brad, Para, Jameer, and Maria, thank you so much uh, for all that you guys have done for me. I know that has been a long three weeks, long month, uh, but you guys never, your faith has never wavered on me. And everybody in that box right there, thank you so much. Uh, a lot of you guys, I didn't know you were coming, so this is a surprise to see you there. Um, and I want to thank my grandparents who are home and my brothers. Uh, I FaceTimed my brother right after, but he didn't answer. Um, but then he called, <laughs> and then he called me later, uh, but I had to go. So thank you to those who are watching. Um, and then the last uh, couple things I want to say, um, honestly, thank you to the people who didn't believe in me. Um, I mean, like, a month ago, I won a 500 title, and people said I would stop at that. Uh, two weeks ago, I won a 1,000 title, and people were saying that was the biggest it was going to get. Um, so three, like, three weeks later, I'm here with this trophy right now. Um, so, <laughs> You know, I tried my best to carry this with grace, and I've been doing my best. So honestly, to those who thought we're... Who, those who thought who were putting water on my fire, you're really adding gas to it. And now I'm really burning so bright right now. And last but not least, uh, thank you to New York. Thank you to you guys. Uh, you guys pulled me through this gas fire. The supporters that I have mean so much to me. So thank you all. And thank you to everyone who made this tournament possible, especially you, Stacey. You put on an incredible tournament. Uh, I mean, I remember uh, just being here a couple couple years ago, and you always believed in me. So thank you for uh, just doing that. And all the ball kids, photographers, uh, staff behind the scenes, everyone who made this tournament possible, thank you so much. And thank you, New York. Oh, my God, this means so much. Thank you. It's been the summer of Coco. Congratulations, Coco. And now to hand you the prize money check. You ready? Three million dollars. Fitting that Billie Jean is standing next to her is managing director, J.P. Morgan Private Bank, Nell Miller. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my goodness. You're an inspiration to us all. Thank you, Billie, for fighting for this. And there's one more thing. In honor of your win here tonight, the USDA is investing $3 million in a legacy project to refurbish public courts across the country, inspiring kids from all backgrounds to achieve their dreams through tennis. Thanks to you, Coco. And now as we call to make the celebration of the 50th anniversary of Equal Prize Money, 
the great, the one and only Billie Jean King will present Coco with her trophy. She has done it. Coco Goff is the queen of New York. Under the gaze of Billie Jean King, 19-year-old Coco is the newest phenom in world sport. She has worked a lifetime for this moment, and on Saturday evening, the tears of triumph flowed forth. Trips Tennis Talk proudly presents the 2023 United States Open Tennis Championships. Hey everyone, welcome to Trips Tennis Talk, the amateur podcast about professional tennis. This is going to be a two-part podcast today. Part one is being recorded here on Sunday morning for me. 2.32 East Coast, 11.32 a.m. West Coast here, and the first part of the podcast is going to discuss Saturday's Women's Championship, which saw the American 19-year-old teenager Coco Goff win her first Grand Slam championship against the number one in waiting, Arena Sabalenka. And the second part, which you will hear a little bit later, We'll discuss the upcoming men's final in soon-to-be-out-of-date tennis news between uh, Novak Djokovic and Daniil Medvedev. But let's start right with the women's final. And this is obviously going to be the part where I react to it in my own words. And there's two segments to cover here. One, the match itself, and two, the cultural impact of what is going to happen as a result of this win. I want to go a little bit different. I want to start with the big picture and then go to the granular match details second. So what does this mean? So first, let's start with what did this mean for me as a fan watching this yesterday? It was very emotional. It was a great moment to watch as a longtime fan of the sport. When Goff collapsed to the court and started weeping immediately afterwards, it kind of got me a little bit. And uh, I'm sure it got some people in the crowd, too. It's always nice when you see human beings that have sacrificed their whole life for something reach the pinnacle and achieve that dream, and in that moment, you see what it means in that fleeting segment of time. 
I've come up through a similar thing. In many ways, the music performance world, and the education world for that matter, is very much like that. It's a very performative-based sport that's based on honing your craft, practicing your craft, and executing your craft in high-leverage, high-tension, high-profile situations. And I'm very lucky in my life to have experienced that feeling of triumph several times, at least a few times. And when you achieve the pinnacle, in that moment, it's a great feeling. You feel relief. You feel confidence. You maybe live outside yourself for a moment, and you appreciate all that you've done, all that the system has done to help you get there. It's a triumph for you as the individual, but it's also a triumph for the people that helped you along the way to get there. And in Goff's case, that would be her coaches, Brad Gilbert, Pierre Riba, um, Stefan, who she mentioned in her uh, speech, her parents, um, and anybody else that may have helped her along her journey. Again, I don't even know where to begin with this because the cultural impact, I don't think we know the full um, uh, extent of what this win is going to mean. I mean, we can start with the casual, like um, the last two Democratic U.S. presidents have tweeted or X'd her. Um, Obama tweeted at 6.35 p.m. Eastern yesterday, Quote, congratulations to U.S. Open champion Coco Goff. We couldn't be prouder of you on and off the court, and we know the best is yet to come. Now, if, if, you, if anybody out there has looked at the replies to tweets from politicians, you know that it can be a very toxic place. But um, the replies to this Obama tweet, they're very positive. Some other replies here say, she was simply phenomenal. Congratulations to Coco Goff. Congratulations to her. She deserved it. Congratulations to my champion Coco. Champs, congratulations, well-deserved. Congratulations, dream come true. Congrats, this is only the beginning. Um, it must indeed be a surreal moment. She's a treasure. Clapping emoji. So... That definitely tells you something when political people are on the page like that. And, you know, maybe you could say o Obama's not a politician anymore. Well, let's jump over to Joe Biden's account. And obviously the president himself didn't tweet this because he's an old man that doesn't know how Twitter works. But on his behalf, somebody in the White House tweeted this for the at POTUS account. Congrats to U.S. Open champion Coco Goff. You electrified Arthur Ashe Stadium and the entire nation, the first of more to come, and proof that anything is possible if you never give up and always believe. You've made America so proud. And underneath that, there's slightly more political comments. The first two comments on this are political, but the third one, congratulations. Then, congratulations, Coco, America's proud of you. Congratulations. Yes. Congratulations. Congratulations to U.S. Open champion Coco Goff. 
Congratulations. Good. Congratulations. Amazing performance and well-deserved. Really well-deserved. Well-deserved. Congratulations. Yeah. Heart emoji. Fire emoji. Clapping emoji. So this definitely broke through at that level, the top national level for sure. Coco's win had that sort of impact. And we should read the Michelle Obama one too, um, obviously for obvious reasons. And she tweeted, So proud of you, Coco Goff. Your hard work and grit was on display throughout this tournament. This is your moment. Then she posted a photo of um, Obama, the first lady, um, Michelle Obama, and then the Goff and her and her two parents. So the five of them were all posing, and Coco Goff got to stand in between the former president and the former first lady of the United States. Um, and you know, obviously, they're all black, so that is going to be part of this too. And hopefully I'll remember to address that at some point. Why not address it now while it's on my brain? So let's talk about that. So I wanted I don't want to spend too much time um, connecting. I don't that's the wrong word. I don't want to make it sound like Goff's victory today was dependent on Serena and Venus Williams because Goff has differentiated herself enough that they don't have to be directly connected. Um, that's not exactly the right verbiage either. Let me, let me say it like this. Goff had to win it by herself today. Nobody helped her win this tournament but herself in terms of winning the actual seven matches. She had to have her own game. She had to work hard on her own to achieve that. And when she was set down to Sabalenka today... Like, Venus and Serena didn't help her win from that. She had to do it herself. But maybe she had the tools from others to be able to do it herself. Um, you know, the, the fact is, this probably doesn't happen if Serena and Venus don't do what they did in the last 25 years. Um, events like this, Coco winning, you know, even going back to Sloane Stevens, you know, any success that Madison Keys has had, um, major final couple semis. That's all because of the Williams sisters. And, you know, so th from the tennis side, the Williams sisters made this possible. From the sort of American dream sort of side, guys like Obama, they could have made it possible because if, you know, if he can become president of the United States, then Coco Goff can certainly win the U.S. Open, right? So... Um, I think that's all I'm going to say about that, but it's a big, it's a big moment. It's a big moment for the nation, and it's a big moment for, uh, the black community in general, I think. And it's kind of interesting, the, and we'll, we'll you know, I'm going to get into this, the power in American tennis right now kind of resides with the black players. Ben Shelton made the semifinals here. Um, Francis Tiafo made the quarterfinals here. Madison Keys made the semifinals. And Coco Goff went all the way and won it. And if you compare that to the other side, 
you know, Taylor Fritz, he got his butt kicked by Djokovic this tournament. John Isner retired. Um, and I, like, Jensen Brooksby is nowhere to be found right now. Mackenzie McDonald didn't really make an impact here. Um, Kennan did not make an impact here. Um, and I know, you know, I'm not going to list every single black and white player, but, you know, it is an interesting mo- moment that, um, you know, that the players that made it to the final weekend, you know, and it happened in New York as well. So it's interesting. It's a nice, uh, it's a nice moment for American tennis. Let's end it on that note. Um, and this is a, this story broke through in terms of news media coverage. It broke through, however briefly or however long it may break through on all levels to all audiences. Goff's victory was leading ESPN.com on a college football Saturday that featured marquee games like Texas beating Alabama, um, Colorado continuing their ascent, um, and so on. It, um, so Goff won at 6.20 Eastern Time, the 7 o'clock news updates, she made the Bloomberg Radio news update, which covers global economy, the global economy stuff. It's a global business station. She made the update there. Um, CBS Radio, which they play on Sirius XM's POTUS channel, she, she was mentioned on the top of the hour news update there. She led the Sirius XM Sports um, update, again, while college football games were going on. Um, she was on the front page, the A1 of all news, on NewYorkTimes.com, on WashingtonPost.com. Um, those were the only ones I checked. And obviously now we're taping this on the next day here, so it might be different. But it wouldn't surprise me if she's still on there. Let's see. So if I look at, uh, yeah, uh, she's still on the front page of NewYorkTimes.com. Let's check a different one. Let's check... Uh, CNN, um, uh, she's got to be on here. I'm just going to look for the next five seconds. Let me let me type in her name here. Control F her name. Goff. Yep. So Goff's on the front page of CNN.com. That does not surprise me. Um, and she's going to be on all the morning shows on Monday if she didn't do them today, because that's what the champions do. They they, they stop in Manhattan and they do the 7 a.m. hit on the Today Show and Good Morning America and all that. So I think I've, I've definitely demonstrated the pervasiveness that Goff's win has in media. And audiences are going to respond to that because of her youth, because of the fact that she's an American, because of her um, place... In because of her connection to the Williams sisters, because of who she is, that is why lots of people are going to um, give the media organizations the clicks and the money to read all these stories um, because the people are intrigued by her and they want to hear about her. Um, and it really feels like the beginning of something, like... It would be extremely surprising if this was the only major that Goff ever won. 
nobody is I, I should phrase it this way I'm not saying she's gonna compete for the the Serena number of more than 20 I'm not even saying she'll get particularly close but could she win five to ten majors five to ten to 15 obviously that's a big spread but she could she could have a double digit career potential for Grand Slam titles um it certainly feels like she's on her way to the Hall of Fame already. In the last month, she's won, a, you know, a 500, a 1,000, and a 2,000 Grand Slam level tournament. Before we get to more tennis stuff, let me sit and think here about other sort of mainstream things I need to touch on in terms of golf. I mean, I covered the national media part. She's going to be written about a lot. There are going to be a lot of deep-dive Coco Goff stories that are written, and I think we're still waiting for those stories to be published. But when they come out, people are going to read them. Um, just to wrap, the, just to put a bow on the national and, in, and international coverage, it can't be understated how big of a deal this is for tennis. And a lot of the time on this podcast, I criticize media coverage and I criticize a lot of tennis journalism for overhyping things that should not be overhyped. But in this particular case, the hype machine behind Coco Goff is completely justified. She is a global superstar in the making, and if she continues on this path... You know, she doesn't have to win every single Grand Slam, but if she can win a major or two every season or two, she is going to be a massive global superstar. And having a likable superstar is going to be good for tennis. Like, for me personally, I've never been the biggest Naomi Osaka fan, and it irks me the coverage that she gets, including this week when she's not playing. But if there's a likable... So for me, Goff is essentially a likable version of Naomi Osaka. And I can totally get behind that. Normally, I don't really cover the sort of tabloid side of tennis because I find it to be frivolous. But Goff is getting all this coverage because of winning tennis matches. And um, yeah, one more thing to mention on this. Chris Everett brought it up during the broadcast. She vaguely alluded to something like how Coco is comfortable using her voice. And yes, she has attracted attention for doing that. Um, she has weighed in on social justice issues on uh, Twitter X. And uh, she hasn't made news for that recently, but, you know, in 2022, she said some things, and in 2020, she was, you know, obviously supportive of, you know, the stuff that was going on then, like the George Floyd stuff. I don't have the exact stuff that she wrote in front of me, but just in general, know that, you know, she supports, you know, quote-unquote, you know, she supports, uh, she's vocal in uh, social justice issues. You know, I don't know, I don't know if I'd even necessarily say that. In the past, she has voiced her opinion on social justice issues. There we go. That's a nice sterilized way of saying that. 
You see, everybody, I was very careful there, wasn't I? Anyway, I mean, and that, there is the sort of social justice, sort of cultural, political element to Goff, and that's part of why she's going to get such a big audience here. But on the other side of it, she's just a tennis player, you guys. She's just a 19-year-old teenager, little baby, who is really good at tennis, so people want to know what she has to say. Just like any of any other athlete in the history of the world that has achieved success, you know, people want to hear those athletes talk about anything, really. So, in that way, Goff is not unique among uh, the world's top athletes. Um, yeah, so now... Let's move to the slightly smaller scale on this. So what does this mean for tennis? Um, so for Goff, she has won a major at age 19. This year, um, she didn't really make that big a run at the first three majors. Um, she, she did not defend her Roland Garros final points from 2022. She lost in the first round at Wimbledon. And at that point, she was kind of stuck in a malaise. To go, so to go back to the beginning on Goff, and let me pull up her Wikipedia page here with her results. So she burst on the scene in 2019 when she beat Venus Williams at Wimbledon as a 15-year-old. And she made the round of 16 that week. And... Um, so in 2019, in the last two majors, she went fourth round, third round. 2020, fourth round, second round, first round. 2021, she made the quarters at the French and the fourth round at Wimbledon, and then second round, second round at the hardcourt ones. 2022, she lost first round at the Australian Open. So that's, you know, an almost, that's a two and a half year pattern of. You know, in two and a half years, she made the quarterfinals once at a major. And um, throughout that time, I was saying we need to give Goff her space. She's only, she's, lit, she's 16, 17 years old. She does not have to do a damn thing for a long time. She deserves the space to have her career go. And if you take out if she did if she had beaten somebody else at Wimbledon 2019 that wasn't Venus and she had gotten the same result i wonder what the coverage would have been like and how the coverage would have been in the last 4 years i think she still would have gotten some coverage because it would have been a 15 year old black american making the the second week of wimbledon but i do wonder how if it would have been a tiny bit less but anyway i was saying to all of you and on Twitter at the time that she should be protected from the media, her parents should protect her, she should be given a break, no expectations at the number one Hall of Fame Grand Slam winning level should be attached to her, because in tennis now, you can win into, until your mid-30s. If, if Coco Goff had gone from age 15 to age 35, she could play for 20 years and not win a Grand Slam. And then if she won a Grand Slam at age 35, that would completely reframe her career. 
So by that logic, obsessing about what she's doing at age 16 and 17 is a waste of time. I would also apply that to guys like Nick Kyrgios. If he wins a major five years from now, it completely reframes his entire career. And that goes for anybody that wins at any point in their career. Because we've seen it many times, one-hit wonders for Grand Slams are nothing new. And obviously, you'd much rather be a one-hit wonder than a zero-hit wonder. You know what I'm saying? Winning a Grand Slam is not a derogatory or a pejorative thing. So in 2022, Goff made the finals of Roland Garros. She got destroyed by Sviantec. Well, let me let me actually get the score on that. Yeah, six one six three, and Goff's talked the last day or two about how that sort of demoralized her. Then third round Wimbledon quarters U.S. Then this year fourth round quarters first round. So coming into this week, her Grand Slam career had been. There's two ways to look at it, right? Number one, she made a Grand Slam final before age 20. But number two, by the media standards of Hall of Fame number one Grand Slam winner, she had basically done nothing. But by my standard, which was much lower, she had, uh, you know, obviously I would give her much more of a break. But even me, it was true that even if you were attaching lower expectations to Coco Goff. You know, in the last couple of years, first round, third round, first round at three of the last eight majors, three of the seven before this one, like, you would have hoped to do a little better, right? Like, I'm not asking for a semi or a final here, but maybe if she could have made another third round, another fourth round, that would have been a little more on target. It is true that based on where she set the bar in 2019, 2020, 2021, you know, even making the French final in 22, she had been regressing even from those standards. No matter what standards you attach to Goff, she had been regressing in the last year or so. Um, her forehand had been uh, a subject of uh, discussion, pejoratively so, by people on tennis Twitter, and rightly so, because her forehand was not very good. Her game had regressed, her image had regressed somewhat, and things were not going in the right direction overall. Uh, And again, she could have had the next 15 years to fix them, but she fixed them in two months. Just to recap, after... um, Uh, Wimbledon when she lost first round she hired Brad Gilbert um, and Pierre Riba and she also decided to work hard herself like she she hired those people right yes she did so that meant that she was in control of this right it wasn't like these other it wasn't like these two adult males came in of their own accord and then they molded this from nothing She went out and got them. So Coco knew that she had to make a move to get herself better, and she did that all by herself. So credit to her for that. And she won the Washington 500. Um, 
you know, lost in Canada, but then won Cincinnati, and now she has won the U.S. Open. So she's won um, tournaments of at three different levels in the last month. That is pretty hard to do indeed. And um, uh, the fact that she was able to turn it around so quick, the fact that she was able to fix her forehand or at least cover it up or maybe improve it by 2 or 3% or whatever, the fact that she was able to fix whatever she needed to fix on the court in the middle of a season, which is unheard of, is incredible. And it's a testament to her ability as a player, her ability as a talent, and her ability as a grinder and as a hard worker. So that is very inspiring to us all for sure. Um, So let's take a look at the rankings now, and then we'll talk about the actual match, and we'll hit Sabalenka a little bit. So... um, Alrighty, WTA live rankings are going to be here. So, despite the loss, Arena Sabalenka is your new world number one as of tomorrow, September 11th. Um, I believe she's the 29th. I think that's right. I haven't seen that number for a couple days. Player to be ranked number one in the WTA. She was the most consistent player in the majors this year for sure. She went win, semifinal, semifinal, final in the four majors this year. So I know she's crushed, and she is rightfully crushed. But if you're the coach, and if a couple of days go by, you say to Sabalenka, you are a reigning Grand Slam champion, and you are a reigning world number one, that's a pretty good season. So Sabalenka's number one, 9,266. Iga Fiontek is number two, 8,195, so she's about 1,000 back. Goff is up to a new career high of number three, 6,165. Elena Rybakina is four, 5,790. Pagula is five, 5,755, just behind number four there. Marketa Vondrosheva, career high number six, 3,830. Ons Debor is seven. Carolina Mukova, new career high, number eight. Sakri is number nine after a string of early exits. Caroline Garcia is ten. And taking a look at some big movers and shakers further down. Zhu Lin is up to 35. Xinyu Wang is up to number 39. Peyton Stearns now on the top 50, number 44. Katie Bolter is up to number 50. Um, and, uh, yeah, now taking a look at, uh, the race rankings for the WTA, this is points earned year to date, Sabalenka, 9266, or, wait a minute, live WTA race, okay, there we go, Sabalenka is at 8210, she's qualified for the year-end finals in Cancun, that news came out this week. Sviatek's number two right now. She's also qualified for Cancun, 69.05. So she's over 1,000 points back with just a couple months to go. She could still get there, but she'd have to win a couple of 1,000s and hope Sabalenka kind of loses early a couple of times. 
Goff is 56-20. She's probably not going to be number one for the year. But if she gets very lucky and plays a lot, maybe she has a shot. Maybe. But Goff has also qualified for Cancun. Elena Rybakina, number four, 54-76. She's also qualified for Cancun. Obviously, the top eight players make it. So half of them have qualified already, and then there's four spots open. Number five right now, Pagula, 44.05. Number six, Von Drusova, 36.61. Number seven, Mukova, 36.50. And Anz Jabor has the last spot right now, 32.12. On the outside looking in, about 500 points back is Madison Keys. About 700 points back is Kvitova. Um, Benchich is about the same number back at number 11. And Ostapanko is 12. Um, so there you go. All right. So from the Sabalenka side, as we heard earlier, she was obviously crushed about this. Um, I thought during the match... Um, she did not change her game plan. And, you know, on the broadcast, Chris Everett said as much. Um, maybe doing the same thing was intentional, but, you know, maybe she couldn't have changed up her style to be less powerful because she was making a lot of long, unforced errors. Um, I mean, Sabalenka even said in her interviews and press conferences that she was a little bit tight. Um Maybe she could have taken more air off the ball. But then Goff would have gotten to them with her amazing defense, right? But, you know, maybe it's kind of pick your poison. How do you want to lose the point? Do you want to lose the point hitting it too hard and hitting it out? Or hitting it in the court and then Goff runs to it like a gazelle and she hits the winner? So, you know, maybe she was just outplayed. But there was also a video of Sabalenka smashing her racket backstage afterwards. She was holding her little plate and her bag of rackets. She was backstage afterwards. She put the racket bag down. She, she put the, the little plate down, took out one of her rackets, and smashed it on the ground. I love seeing that because you want to be crushed if you lose a tight match like that when she was so close to winning another one because... Sabalenka has had issues in Grand Slams before. Um, you know, she overcame her semifinal hurdle one time this year, although it took an, an incredible statistical rally from Love 6, 3-5 down. But she did not convert that into a major title, so in some ways it was a failure. If you want to go pessimistic on this week for Sabalenka... She did not become number one by winning the tournament. She lost and sort of inherited the number one ranking from a player that has been struggling herself, you know, Sviantek. And um, in terms of her tennis, I don't know how much Sabalenka can change at this point. She's got the power game, and that's all that she's got. She's got issues with nerves and focus and choking, And she's going to keep on having issues with nerves and focus and choking. Um, She's going to have to overcome those, or those tools are going to have to be good enough against the players that she faces in a Grand Slam draw 
if she ever wants to win another major. And let's see how old Sabalenka is. Sabalenka is uh, 25.3 years old. So she can play for another 10 years, so she will have many more chances to get a second major. But she might not. She doesn't seem to have as much upside as, say, Goff does or Sviantek does. It's much more likely that... What, what, what's more likely? Her winning... Sabalenka wins two majors or she wins no majors uh, from this point. I would say it's more likely she wins no majors. You know, obviously she could also get one more. Let's see, what else is there to say about Sabalenka? Um, in, uh, she is what she is. I will admit this. This is something I had to sort of reckon with myself. When this tournament, I found her slightly more likable than I have at the last couple of tournaments. And I compare that to back in Australia this year when she won... I found her likable then, and back then she had not made any stupid political comments at that point yet, but I did notice this thread. In Australia, she won a lot, and I thought, and I viewed her favorably. Um, this week, she won a lot, and I kind of viewed her favorably. So I have to sort of check myself and ask, do I only like her when she wins? Is it more because of that, or is it more because of politics? And if I was going to rebut my own argument there, I would say, you know, of the two of the two other majors, she made the semis, so it's not like she won that much less. And thinking about this in real time here, I do think it was because of her political comments, because... In Australia, she didn't really make political comments, and I viewed her favorably. In the Australian, in the Roland Garros and Wimbledon, she made political comments, and I viewed her unfavorably. This week, she didn't make political comments, and I viewed her more favorably. There was n no coverage this week of Sabalenka's press conferences. They were just regular press conferences. And if you go back to Roland Garros... You know, her media exposure was a huge story at the time. So, working through my own head here in real time, I do think that when she stopped talking about politics, I viewed her more favorably. And even, even with that, she was still the villain, definitely. Number one, she was the villain because she wasn't American, and the crowd was rooting for the American. But two, you know, she is still from Belarus, so even if she wasn't, you know as unlikable as before. It's uh when a Belarusian player loses, you know, I'm definitely no tears shed here for that. And you know, a Belarusian player that has not condemned stuff in the past. So, you know, basically you can sum up this as uh you know, Goff winning, Sabalenka losing, good guys win, bad guys lose. And that doesn't always happen in the world. So it's nice to see the good guys take one down for once. Um, and uh, for Goff, we already talked about the implications of her win. Um, and I'm not going to pick her to win the next 12 Grand Slams or whatever. If she won a Grand Slam next year, that'd be a great follow-up. 
But if she loses in the semifinals or the quarterfinals of Australia, eh, whatever. She's still a U.S. Open winner. She still moves on. Goff is the um, youngest American player to win the U.S. Open since Serena Williams in 1999. So that's a nice stat to be associated with there. Um, so 38 minutes into this segment, let's get into actually looking at the match here. So let me bend down here and get my notebook. All right. And I should also get the stats up on usopen.org. Let's do that right now. USO scores uh, women's singles completed matches from yesterday. All right. Got that up here. And it doesn't... Does it do it by set? No, it doesn't. Okay. Oh, maybe it does here. Um, stats. Full stats. Yeah, I want the full stats. Okay, there it is. Okay. Um, uh, okay, so the match. So, the U.S. Open Women's Championship between the number two seed, Arena Sabalenka, and the number six seed, Coco Goff was on September 9th, 2023. The match started at 4.17 p.m. local time. Goff was serving first. Um, she got broken in the first game. Um, Sabalenka was ahead the whole way for the early part of the match. Um, you know, until the third set, Sabalenka led the total points um, all the way, even in that first game, Goff never led in the total points count. Um, Sabalenka came out, you know, early in the match, the quality was not very good, to be honest. It was one of those matches where great shots would not win the points. The points were being won by the player who did not make the mistake. So early on, it was not a very high quality match, and the stats are going to back me up here. So in the first set, Sabalenka was, um, let's see here, um, in the first set, the plus-minus, now this is the winners and the unforced errors, if you add them together, if it's a negative number, that means you made more errors than winners, if it's a positive number, that means you made more winners than errors. Now the first set, plus-minus, Goff was minus 7, and Sabalenka was minus 6, so um, the quality was not very good in that first set. And I thought Sabalenka did not play that well in that set. And I thought if she had been tested, she would have maybe lost in straights. Um, and, you know, Sabalenka was not playing that well, and she still won it 6-2. Um, um, Goff won less than 50% of her first serve points. Um, you know, Sabalenka won 73% of first serves. Goff won 45. That's a 28% point. Um, disparity that is very large. Um, second serves, um, Sabalenka forty-two percent won, and Goff thirty-eight percent. So um, statistically, um, Sabalenka absolutely deserved to win that first set. Goff's serve was kind of a mess for a while. So in that first set, Goff served once, twice, three times, four times, four times, and. She was broken one, two, three times. So she only held serve once in that first set. And, uh, 
you know, obviously she would want to turn that around. Sabalenka feasts on that serve, and despite not playing that well, still wins that first set six games to two. Goff served to open the second set, and right away, she double-faulted twice in that game, and you could feel maybe it would, maybe it'd be like a quick victory for Sabalenka at this point, but Goff managed to hold that game. Sabalenka let her off the hook a little bit, if I recall, by missing some easy returns and, you know, having some negative body language, even though she was up 6-2. But Goff won the first game of the second set, and that was twofold. Number one, even though it was just one love, Goff was up in the game score, and that would, you know, cause Sabalenka to think about it differently, which she did. And two, Goff held her serve for only the second time. So she started the first set one out of four, and she was starting the second set one out of one in terms of games held. Um, And from that point on, it was just a little bit different. Um, In the second set, Goff did not lose her serve, and I think that was because she held that first game and got in Sabalenka's head a little bit. You know, Sabalenka was unable to front run in the second set, and she struggled. Um, Uh... Um, she double faulted to lose her serve. Sabalenka did at 1-2. Goff got the lead 3-1. And she uh, closed out the rest of the set 6-3. And, you know, it's one set all. And just to not to completely rush by the second set, there was a point, um, you know, 6-2 and in that first game or even at, uh, 6-2, 1-all. Goff was pretty close to losing. If she had gone down a break early in the second set, the match would have shifted dramatically in Sabalenka's direction. And um, um, they were talking on the ESPN broadcast about how um, Brad Gilbert and, and Pierre Riba were trying to offer her assurances, and uh, in their words, she kind of didn't want to hear it, or she waved him off or didn't look at him. And um, if she had lost, you would have said maybe she should have looked to her coaches for some guidance. But on the other hand, she waved him off, and eventually she came back to win. So in that moment when Coco was losing, she had the presence of mind to do whatever she had to do inside her own mind to keep her in the game. And, you know, just a couple of games after that, she broke, got the lead, and never really relinquished it in the set scores after that. Um, You know, that's an interesting point here. So, yeah, after... So, from 1-1 in the the second set, rather, Goff held serve to go up 2-1 in the second set. And from that point on, she never trailed in the set score... And the only time it was tied after that was when it was love all on the third set. So it really wasn't that competitive afterwards. And I'm going to have to track the point breakdown of that here. Um, And then, uh, so now we're in the third set. But before that, sorry, second set stats. Plus minus in the second set. Goff minus two. And Sabalenka minus ten. So Sabalenka got worse. And Goff got better. And starting in the middle of the second set, the quality of the match was definitely higher. Um, 
you know, and there you can see it was because Goff raised her level. So instead of two players playing poorly, it was one player playing pretty well and the other player still playing poorly. But that's a net positive on the quality of the match. Um, second set, um, um, Goff won um, 81% on first serve, Sabalenka 62, huge turnaround, and um, uh, Sabalenka was still plus two on the second serve. Third set, um, it was all one-way traffic, um, Goff got the break in the first game, held to go up two love, got the break again pretty easily, went up two breaks, held again pretty easily to go up four love. Um, then I didn't write this down, but it was at about this point that Sabalenka took a medical timeout, and she was fine. She was not injured. She didn't require a medical timeout. She just did that to try to slow the momentum, try to make Goff think about what she was about to accomplish, and hopefully that would impact her in a negative way. She got, Sabalenka got a rub down on her legs, and she uh, got to sit down for a couple extra minutes. And while that was happening, Goff was standing up and practicing some serves. And I loved that because it sent the message like Goff was sending a message that said, hey, I'm ready to go. Are you ready to keep getting your butt kicked? I mean, I'm ready. Get your ass back out here. Let's go. I'm going to keep on beating you. I'm not going to be intimidated by this moment. I'm not going to let your shenanigans work on me. And in the end, that's exactly what happened. Goff lost a game or two after that, but, you know, in the end, she, you know, got it done. So that was kind of a, that was an underhanded thing that Sabalenka did, and I thought that was pretty uncool. Um, and, you know, I mean, every everybody in the whole stadium knew that she was gaming the system to be able to do that. In press, she basically said she wasn't injured, they didn't even ask about it till p- pretty late in the press conference, as you've heard. Um, you know, so it was there was no injury. She was just trying to stall the momentum. Um, it did get back to one break briefly. Sabalenka was serving at 2-4. She got one of the breaks back. But she lost her serve easily, and then Coco served it out at love, which we heard at the beginning of today's episode. So uh, Coco got the win, uh, um, 2-6, 6-3, 6-2. In the third set, which Coco dominated, you know, statistically she was way better on everything. For the entire match, um, uh, the decisive stat here would be win percentage on second serve. For the match, Coco was at 52% and Sabalenka was at 41 um, uh, Sabalenka was broken five times and Goff was only broken four times. Total points one, Goff 83, Sabalenka 74. Um, Sabalenka led the total points um, for most of the match until the first game of the third set. And at that point... Uh, Goff led it the rest of the way. So through two sets, Sabalenka was probably the better player. For the full three sets, no question, Goff is a deserving champion.
Um, so yeah, it, the the final, the tennis of the final wasn't too memorable. Um, a couple things I haven't mentioned: the crowd was a living organism in this match. They were pretty quiet early on, as you might expect, because Goff was not winning very much. But um, as the match went along, they uh, supported her more and more, and she acknowledged them in the post-match, as you heard. When it was getting late in the match, they were giving her a standing ovation every point. Um, It was pretty cool, and uh, Arthur Ashe Stadium was packed, and they were so loud. I was struck by, in the final game, when she served it out at love, when she won the point, the, sh- the stadium would shake, and there would be a huge roar, and then when it was time for her to serve, it would be a quiet, and you could hear a pin drop, and then she'd win the next point, and they would scream and shake, then it would go quiet again, and that happened three or four times. It was incredible. You know, the New York crowd finally got what they wanted, because in recent years, they have behaved very badly because the person they want to see lose ends up winning, and they um, act like complete animals, and um, they're a disgrace, like when they're watching Medvedev, for example. But, you know, they are capable of being well-behaved. They didn't say a word or make a sound when Coco was serving for the match. So the New York crowd finally got one, so uh, good for them, I guess. And, um, so yeah, um, it was not the best Grand Slam final tennis-wise ever, um, but it was a comeback, and, yeah, that's the last thing I want to talk about. People, even people that have watched tennis for a long time, don't have the patience sometimes to realize that anything can happen from any position. Like, I had someone text me, you know, in the first set, oh, Coco's completely overmatched. She's totally out of it. And then she ends up winning, obviously. Um, someone else texted me and said, looks like Sabalenka's going to take this one down. And obviously she didn't. I mean, especially with, like, the five-set format, and even with three sets, people out there have to realize that tennis matches are not over until they're over. And if you've watched tennis for any length of time, you know a comeback is possible from any score. And I think people don't think about that enough in the moment. I think people need to realize that anything can happen at any time, and that just because something is true for the first half hour of a match, it does not mean that it's going to be true for the next half hour or the half hour after that. I think people should maybe put the phone down sometimes and not make grand pronouncements and just enjoy what's in front of them. It was a Grand Slam final. Just enjoy it game by game as a viewer that we get to watch these matches. That's what I say. Let's now hear from the two finalists. First, let's hear from Arena Sabalenka, and then let's hear from Coco. Well, uh, thank you so much, first of all. And Yeah, there's uh, some positive thing things um, I'm living this uh, some some not really positive but it's okay it's 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 a it's a process we're all we're all learning and I guess it's it's a lesson for me I will I will learn it and come back 
stronger. All right, congratulations once again. Uh, name and affiliation, please. We have a big room, one question. I will go to you once, no follow-ups, and please no shooting from the, st from the seats, okay? I know that there's an inclination to do that, especially with the cell phones, okay? Name and affiliation, please. Courtney. Courtney Nguyen, WTA, Tough Luck uh, Today Arena. But um, can you just talk through the match a little bit about where you felt that the, it began to turn and after that dominating kind of first set, did her defense and court coverage kind of start to shrink the court a little bit for you? Uh, well, um, I would say that in the first set, I was dealing with my emotions quite, quite good. I was focused on myself, uh, not on the... Uh, crowd or the way she she moved. I mean, yeah, she, definitely she was moving just unbelievable today. But then in the second set, I start probably overthinking, and because of that, I start um, kind of like uh, losing my power, and, and 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 she start moving better. I start missing a lot of easy shots, and I mean, the good news is that I'm it's me against me. The bad one is that I'm still going. I'm still um, having these issues playing against myself. I would say, <clears throat> sorry, but um, but it's okay. I'll I'll work I'll work harder. So I'm not. Um, so next time I'm not going to get uh, even a little bit tired on court, and I will be. Uh, so I'll be better. Yeah. Brian. Brian Lewis, New York Post. Uh, just following up, I just want to make sure I'm clear. In your mind, some of the unforced errors on your part, particularly forehand, um, I mean, was that more you and, and your emotions, or was that more a physical thing that kind of got away, or was that her defense that forced the unforced errors? Well, I would, I would definitely say that she was moving really well and defending really great, better than anybody else. So I had I, I always had to play like an extra ball. So it's like it's a combination of everything. Like, uh, but I would say that today was more because of me. Like uh, there is like not the whole match, but like there was like key moments in the second set, which uh, the one I lost. Uh, uh, the, I mean the moments I lost, and and those moments help help her to turn around the game. Um, and afterwards, it was just like of course unbelie her unbelievable defending game. But like I would say that, just because of that, like key moments in the second set, um, where it was more about me than her, I lost this much. Okay. Matt, uh, Harry and Matt Futterman from the New York Times, you had to play Coco today, but you also had to play about twenty-four thousand other people. What was that like to be in that kind of environment? And I imagine it was really hard. But what can you explain? What that felt like? Well, I wouldn't say that I was playing against the crowd. Uh, I got a lot of uh, support messages from people from 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 here, from New York. So I mean, I knew that they. I mean, how how can they support me more than her? Of course, they're going to support her. She's 19 years old, uh, playing the final of the Grand Slam. That's just unbelievable. She 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 made she actually made the history. She's. Um, I kind of like expect expected this and. I mean, I didn't didn't play against them, and I would say that sometimes this kind of like support can put a lot of pressure uh, on the player whom they're supporting, you know. So um, and it's kind of like 
it was a pressure on her in, in the beginning. It just, it just uh, me. I didn't, uh, I didn't uh, finish uh, um, important points, um, meaning like I made these uh, unforced errors there. And yeah, of course, I gave them the energy. They start, uh, they start to be louder. She started to uh, feeling a little bit better on court. So yeah. Uh, hi, Irina Adeshina Koike, USOpen.org. Congratulations on a great one. Uh, during the trophy ceremony, you held your composure for the most part, and then uh, you mentioned your, fam uh, your family and you apologized and said you were sorry <laughs> for the result. Uh, what did you feel that you were sorry about and about your family and loved ones? Like, how much have they helped, or, what we learned, how have they helped the most in turning Irina Sapolenka? the pro to Arena Sapolenka, the Grand Slam champion? Well, if not them, I wouldn't be here. Um, they've been pushing themselves so hard, so I, w I would uh, have this chance to become a tennis player. And uh, I mean, <laughs> it's, uh, it's I don't know, what time is it there right now? It's probably night and uh, uh, for me, it's important uh, to to get a good sleep for them, you know? <laughs> so they were awake uh, watching me. And I mean, now they have to go to bed, but 100% they're not gonna sleep well. So that was my apologize for. Um, and yeah, I would say that um, my family did a good job. And uh, if not them, I wouldn't be here. And I'm, I'm really, I really appreciate for everything they did. and. Um, yeah. Thanks, Bill. Congratulations on all you've done with the sport. Um, a tough question, but you said you were playing against yourself. What what aspects are you playing against? Can you share some some of the, the issues you have? Yeah, I mean, sometimes I can get uh, emotional and. Today on the court, I was overthinking and I was missing quite, like, not easy balls, but but the balls I shouldn't be missing. And, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm making a lot of winners and a lot of unforced errors. And today it was more about, not more about, it was, unforced errors was a lot um, in the second set. And, and that's that's where I gave her belief that she can win this, this match. And, and I, I get uh, over emotional after the um, second set. So, yeah, this is what I mean, like me against me. Photographer in the back, can you please move to the left? Can you please move to the left? Thank you very much. Thank you. Andrew. Andrew Jones, ESPN Anscape Arena. When did you feel your thigh, or if that was your thigh that had the injury for the medical timeout, and how that maybe in the long rallies may have caused maybe some of those errors for you? And what did you say to her when you embraced her, considering you hit and practiced with her on the Wednesday before the tournament? And if her forehand had improved from the practice and the five times you played against her previously? Um. The, the the injury, um, I would say that like somewhere in the beginning of the third set, but it wasn't like a crazy one. It was just like um, um, super tight, so I felt so much pressure on my uh, left adductor. So that's why I called for a physio, uh, hoping that it's going to help and I would uh, um, I would start probably moving a little bit better. Uh, about about Coco, um, I mean. I mean, she definitely, I would say that she improved her movement on the court more. Uh, 
she's definitely moving better and uh, that's I think what helped her to win this uh, this tournament okay David DavidKingTennis.com, you haven't wanted to talk about number one too much while you were still in the tournament, but now yeah. that the tournament is over, how we reflect on being number one and how that maybe changes how you react to the end of this tournament, knowing that you have still this accomplishment. Um, yeah, that's why probably, that's why I'm like not super depressed right now. I'm definitely going to be. I'm definitely, I'm definitely going for a drink tonight. <laughs> if I'm allowed to say that, yeah, we are athletes and we are sometimes we're drinking, but not much. <laughs> uh, but becoming a world number one, it's a huge uh, improvement um, and uh, achievement actually. And um, I'm really proud of myself that all those years I've been working so hard. Um, help me to become world number one. But you know, like for me, it's more about end the year as world number one, not just like become world number one and then like next week you're, you're second. So, I mean, it's good that I can say that I've been world number one, but I, I really would like to finish the year as world number one. And, uh, and that's why I'm, I'm like, um, I'm, still, I'm still positive and I'm still motivated. <laughs> Thank you. Salvan Cañon from the Spain's Public TV. You have played the final on the year that this tournament is celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Coupe. <clears throat> um, I don't know if you are aware of the huge debate that has arisen in my country, in Spain, after an inappropriate kiss that uh, the Soccer Federation president uh, planted to one of the players on the celebration of uh, Women's Soccer World Cup. Um, this has, has a highlighted um, salary inequalities, also um, inequalities on power. So I would like to know uh, your opinion on that, if you have one. And overall, what role do you think that women's tennis can have or can play on leading and inspiring um, the improvements on um, equity on other sports, female sports, of course? The only thing I can say that I think I think women deserve to be paid um, the same as men because we sacrifice a lot um, um, and we are working working really hard. It's not like uh, it's not like we are doing nothing and and and, uh, and they pay us the same money. I think I think yeah we deserve this uh, um, to be paid the same as men. It's like yeah. The level probably different. Of course, statements are stronger. They, they anyway, they're going to be stronger and better than us. But we are still putting a lot of work in, and I think we deserve to be paid the same. This is the only thing I can say right now. I mean, it doesn't get more dramatic than that, to be honest. Um, yeah, I went to the bathroom and I used the bathroom because <laughs> I was nervous. And then when I was washing my hands, I like put some water on my face, and I was like, okay, you know, I gotta just reset and redo it. And today I, I went into this match like it was any other match. I honestly wasn't nervous going in. Um, she was just playing great tennis. And I knew today it was gonna be one of those problem-solving tough matches because she's a tough opponent. So I'm happy, obviously happy with the result. Okay. Once again, congratulations, historic moment. Thank you. Obviously we have a big room. Be economical with your questions. I'll try to get to as many as possible. I'll apologize beforehand if I don't get to you. 
Uh, name and affiliation, please. David, you can go first. David Law from the Tennis Podcast. Um, Coco, you said on court that after the French Open defeat, you, you felt like the world was going to end for you, and that you came into this feeling very differently. When was the moment, if, if you can pinpoint one, that that changed? Um, honestly, I feel like probably a, mm, probably this French Open is honestly where it changed um, because I felt pressure to back up the final, and I obviously didn't. So I was like, okay, well, I got to reset. And then Wimbledon happened, and that was a tough, tough loss because I thought I was playing good tennis leading up to that. And today it wasn't really a, a change in the match mentality. I felt like I was playing as good as I could in the moment. She's tough power player, so you, it just keeps you always playing on your back foot, honestly, against her. Um, so I was just trying my best. Um, but there was nothing like – I think the momentum did shift a little bit in that when I passed her on a backhand cross-court pass and I got the crowd involved. And after that, I feel like I just felt knew I was coming home with this. Okay. On the left, Matt. Uh, Coco, Matt Futterman from the New York Times. When in this tournament did you start to think that this was really a realistic possibility? Um, that this was going to be that this was going to be your year. I mean, I'm, I know you always mm -hmm. go into things. You're yeah. a competitor, believing it. But and I would imagine, or maybe I'm completely wrong, that as the weeks went, as the two weeks went on, it started to feel become more real, and you started to have those visions. Honestly, I didn't have any of those visions till last night. Um, and you know, I thought about it, but I told myself like get it out of my head um, because that's what I did at French. I was envisioning you know, what it would happen if I would win, and I think I was wanting it too much. And last night I was a little bit, but then I, honestly, I just called my boyfriend and I told him, let's talk until it was time to go to sleep. So we spoke until uh, 1 a.m. Um, and then I went to sleep and I woke up this morning. And yeah, when I lost the first set, I still felt like I was into the match. And I said, you know, I'm going to give it my all. And, you know, whatever happens, happens. And even on that match point, you know, 40 love, like, Technically, the match was on my racket. It didn't feel like I had won. It was crazy. I was just trying my best to just focus on the point ahead of me. Howard Deneva. Coco, Howard Fenrich with the Associated Press. Kind of a similar question, except going further back. Can you remember the first time when you were younger that you first imagined winning a Grand Slam title? And how would you compare the feeling of having done it to what you imagined it might be like? Ooh, I don't, I think the first was when I was eight and I would come like three times, three years or three or four years in a row to see Arthur Ashe Kids Day. And I was just watching, um, you know, players compete on this court. Then I, when I was 13, I think, or 14, when I played US Open Juniors, I watched uh, the men's final that year. Um, so I had those envisions of myself then and Honestly, you know, the French Open moment, I don't know if they caught it on camera, but I watched Iga lift up that trophy, and I watched her the whole time, and I said, I'm not going to take my eyes off her because I want to feel what that felt like for her, and that felt like craziness today, lifting this trophy, and it, doesn't, it hasn't sunken in, and I think it probably will maybe in like a week or so. Okay. Ava. 
Um, Coco Ava Wallace from the Washington Post. In, in those emotions that kind of haven't sunk in yet, is relief one of them? I feel like we've all been talking about a lot of people have been talking since you kind of rose up in tennis. You have all the, the talent and the celebrity and anything, but, you know, when is she going to win? Does is relief factor in at all? Oh, 100%. Um, a lot of relief, but it's not the biggest emotion. I think it's honestly the smallest one, and I think that was what the difference was between French Open and now. I feel like the relief, if I would have maybe won that title, Obviously, I didn't. It would have been the biggest emotion, more than happiness, more than excitement. And right now, I'm just feeling happiness and like a very, very small bit of relief. Um, because I honestly, at this point, I was doing it for myself and not for other people. And yeah, I've just been embracing, you know, every positive and negative thing that's said about me. I realize, you know, sometimes people um, have different personalities, and some people need to shut off the comments and not look at them. But I'm. I'm an argumentative person. Um, I'm very stubborn. My parents know they they know I like to if they tell me one thing, I like to do the other. Um, so uh, I really told myself every literally, literally like up until like ten minutes before the match, I was just reading comments of people saying I wasn't gonna win today. Um, and that just put the fire in in me. <laughs> uh, Darcy. Coco, congratulations, Darcy Main from ESPN.com. Um, so far, President Barack Obama, the first I haven't even on my phone yet. Well, saying <laughs> congratulations. Wow. So I was just going to say, like, what is that? Obviously, they were here last week, but what does it feel like knowing that, and there were so many celebrities in the crowd today, what does it feel like knowing all those people were rooting for you, and have you talked to your brother yet? Did he call you back? <laughs> Honestly, he did answer right before the ceremony started, but I didn't know we were supposed to go up together, so I was just going to wait till they start text talking, and then Stacy was like, you got to go. Um, so I told him I had to leave. So I haven't gotten a chance to speak to him yet, uh, like, long. I just heard him on the phone, both of them, and he was like, let's go. It was so loud. It was hurting my ears, so I hung up. <laughs> um, but, like, the support that I've gotten is incredible, obviously, from President Obama and and former First Lady Michelle is crazy, um, you know, that they were here in my first round match, and now uh, I'm a different person now. And then I saw I saw pretty much every celebrity they've shown on, on that screen. Uh, I've been looking at it the whole night. Um, so, or all week, two weeks, I've been looking at it from the first round to now. Um, and, yeah, some of those people I've actually met before. Uh, I saw Madeline Klein was here. I did a little shoot with her, so I was like, oh, that's cool. Um, so, yeah, I've been embracing, like, everyone. It doesn't make me more nervous. And it honestly helps me keep my mind off the match. And I'm like, okay, I got to win in front of these people. <laughs> Coco, we're going to the wall. Uh, David, then Sandy. Uh, David Wolfstein, New York Times. Uh, for several years, you've been in the public eye, aren't ready, and you've handled it so well. Are you ready for what's coming now? I mean, I feel like, you know, this is a big achievement. But honestly, I feel like it's been... Like, I've been so used to this since I was basically 15 years old uh, in high school, doing online school, uh, just used to it. Um, I mean, I'm sure it might be a much bigger scale now uh, because of this achievement, but uh, I'm, I'm ready. I mean, I, I embrace it. it. I'm, you know, I, I know how to keep my peace, but also embrace all of this around me. Um, and yeah, I think the pressure has been a little bit taken off a little bit um and i still am hungry for more like but yeah i'm just gonna enjoy this and try not to look into the future sandy coco sandy hall at miami herald can you talk a little bit about the advantage of growing up in south florida to become a pro and oh yeah the the endurance is there like i can last as long as 
anybody in the women's side of the tournament, um, and probably even maybe some of the men. Um, so yeah, I mean, the heat means nothing to me. Uh, it was a little bit like the roof was closed because I know it was raining. So I kind of wanted it to be hot, but you know, you can't have everything. Um, and yeah, it definitely helped me. And I think against my Caroline Wozniacki match, um, against Indriva and against Ostapenko, though that was crucial, I think, um, especially against uh, the quarters, I think. I don't even remember what round that was. I think that was the quarters. Um, especially in that match, it helped a lot because it was smoking hot that day. So South Florida uh, has helped me a lot prepare for these moments. Brian. Brian Lewis, New York Post. I'm wondering if you can, I guess, analyze and articulate what was going through your mind. when You've talked about embracing. When you're hugging your family, what was going through your mind at that moment? Nothing. <laughs> Honestly, I was just like, whoa. And yeah, when I hugged my dad and I didn't see him like because he went immediately for the embrace, but I heard him crying and he doesn't like when I say that, but I've never seen that man cry in my life with everything that's happened. Um, yeah, I've never seen him cry. And my mom, I knew she was going to cry regardless if I won or lost. So uh, I wasn't really surprised with that. Um, but man, honestly, nothing like the whole time I was saying to myself, like, oh, my goodness. I was like, how is this real? And then I think a little bit. When I sat down after hugging them on back uh, before the ceremony, I felt I felt like I felt real in that moment. But when I was going to hug them, it didn't. I almost forgot to shake the ref's hand. Like it was a crazy moment. That's right, Russell. Coco okay, okay. Russell, full of BBC. How difficult has it been, in all honesty, to deal with the expectations that people have had of you since what happened at Wimbledon as a 15-year-old? It was. It's been difficult. I mean, it's been a long journey to this point. Um, I wasn't a fully developed player and I still think I have a lot of development to go um, at that moment and I think I, people put a lot of pressure on me to win and I felt that at 15 that I had to win a slam at 15 um, and I think that was you know the not the mistake because everything led to this moment so there was no mistakes but uh, that was like a little bit of the pressure that I was feeling and now I just realized that I just need to just go out there and and try my best I mean it was to the point where um, I remember I lost one turn and when I was 17 and there was a stat. They were like, oh, she's not going to, you know, win a slam before Serena's age. So it was like stuff like that, that, you know, I felt like I had a time limit on when I should win one. Um, and if I won one after a certain age, it wouldn't be an achievement. But, yeah, it's just crazy the amount of things that I've heard or seen about myself. But I'm really happy of how I've been able to manage it all. Okay. Meredith. Hey, Coco Meredith Cash from Insider. Congratulations. Um, there's been a video of you here as a young girl watching. Yes. Um, I'm curious if you could go back and speak to her. What would, what would you tell her now? Man, um, I don't even know if, like, I was that little girl. Like, she had the dream, but, you know, I don't know if she fully believed it. As, as a kid, you have so many dreams. And, you know, as you get older, sometimes it could fiddle away. And I would tell her, don't lose that dream. Um, Honestly, I felt like I lost a little bit of the dream as this journey has gone, but I would tell her don't lose the dream um, and she and just keep having fun. As you can see in the video, I loved um, being on Ash, <laughs> whether it was in a crowd or on the court. Um, so uh, I would just tell her just keep working hard and keep believing in that dream and don't let the doubters uh, diminish that. Richard. Richard Osborne, USOpen.org. Congratulations. Thanks. Um, you grew up idolizing Venus and Serena and just What's it like to look at that trophy there and see your name on, on there with them? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, they're the, 
that they're the reason why I have this trophy today, to be honest. They've allowed me to believe in this dream. You know, growing up, um, you know, there wasn't too many just black tennis players dominating the sport. It was literally, I mean, at that time when I was younger, it was just them that I can remember. And obviously more came because of their, their legacy, so it made the dream more believable. Um, but all the things that they had to go through, um, they made it easier for someone like me to do this. Um, I mean, you look back at the history with the Indian Wells, with Serena, all she had to go through, Venus fighting for equal pay. Um, yeah, it's just like, it's crazy, and it's an honor to be in that kind of lineup and as them, and I'm looking at it. And she's won this a lot of times. <laughs> yeah. Coco in the back. Hi, Coco, Katamitsuki Tennis Podcast. Congratulations. I just wanted to pick up on um, what you said a couple of answers ago about there being moments where the dream died a mm -hmm. bit or faded. When were those moments? Um, I would say um, it wasn't, I would say for sure a little bit after um, the Wimbledon loss, honestly. Um, you know, people, I don't know, I just felt like, you know, people are like, oh, she's hit her peak and she's done. Um, and she's, it was all hype. And I see the comments. People think I don't see them, but I see, I'm very aware of tennis Twitter. I know y'all use her names. Um, so <laughs> I know who's talking trash and I can't wait to look on it <laughs> on Twitter right now. Um, but no, um, so yeah, a little bit after that. And um, yeah, honestly, after that, I was like, okay, um, I have a lot of work to do. And then I think it restarted again um, after DC because uh, I felt like I had the belief, but it wasn't fully there because a 500 to a Grand Slam is a way different level. Um, but yeah, I think after that loss and slightly um, in the 20, uh, 20 year with the COVID thing, and I felt like I had just, that was a rough year too. Um, so I think this means a lot to me and I wish I could, you know, give this trophy to my past self so she can be like, uh, all that, all those tears uh, are for this moment. Andrew. <clears throat> Andrew Jones, ESPN, and say, Lori Dion, golf, Grand Slam champion at age 19. And following that tradition, set from Thea Gibson to Serena Venus, as you mentioned, and then now with Sloan and Naomi to be the latest black woman to win this title and that feeling and reminding yourself that you're a teenager in the hardest era ever for a teenager to not only win a slam but compete. Can you just describe that mental focus and reminding yourself that message and whether if you wanted them to play OC Genesis, I'm in love with the Coco. No, um, I did not want them to play that because it does not mean my name. Uh, it means something else. So, oh no. Uh, but sometimes people in the crowd do say that and I'm like, yeah, that's cute. But <laughs> please, no. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's an honor to be in that stat with Athea Gibson, Serena, Venus, Naomi, Sloan. Uh, they, you know, paid the way to... For me to be here, I remember Sloan winning this trophy in 2017. I had lost in the finals of the Junior U.S. Open, and you know it was a, an inspiring moment for me to see her win because I grew up watching her, and I've known Sloan since I was 10 years old. Um, and then obviously Serena Venus. I mean, I, words can't describe what they meant to me. And I hope that you know that I, I am a continued of a legacy. I hope that another girl can see this and believe that they can do it, and hopefully their name can be on this trophy too. Okay, we'll take a couple more, Dan. Yeah, uh, Dan Walken, USA Today. About the match today, Coco, um, I'm sure you went in trying to get depth. How, how were you able to actually do that in the second set technically? And is that something you might have not been able to do you know, before this run started and the confidence you came through? 
Yeah, it was hard. <laughs> the first set, I mean, I was hitting balls so short, and I was like, why are they going so short? And my team was telling me to get deaf, and I was like, I'm trying. <laughs> and I was trying to, you know, it was hard to redirect the ball where I wanted to go because, like I said, she's always on the front foot, always hitting so fast. Um, but, you know, I've told myself, hey, just keep aim for the baseline because before I was aiming for slightly inside the baseline, which is what I normally do because you don't want to aim for the baseline. Um, but I was like, clearly that was enough. So I was telling myself to aim for a base, the baseline because I'll probably miss short more so than long. And honestly, I think I didn't have too many errors long. I was more so um, hard-hitting winners or forced errors. So I was just trying to stay in the match. I mean, I knew she was going to go out there swinging. And I knew that, you know, I wasn't going to be able to win this match the way I like to play. Do I I don't like to play the way that I play today, running around the court. That's not, you know, it's fun. But, you know, it's not the as fun as hitting winners. So, But I knew going into the match that was going to have to be the way I was going to have to play today against her. Okay, we're going to take two more. Young lady in the back and then Bill. Hi, um, Lola Fadula for the New York Times. <laughs> You've talked a lot about how um, your parents have helped you stay grounded and keep perspective. Um, are there any specific mantras that they've said to you over the years that you repeat to yourself during difficult moments that help you stay confident? Yeah, um, my grandparents, the biggest one my grandfather say, says is never say die. And yeah, I was telling myself that um, you know I wasn't going to give up after that first set. I come too far to do that. And my parents, my dad dreamed big, and he was wearing a shirt today that said, Imagine. Um, I don't know if he was wearing it during the match, but he showed me after the match. So I'm I'm assuming he just, you know, the imaginations can come true. You know, it's not always just an image in your head. You can make it a, real, a reality. And my mom, uh, she's, I don't, she just, she just always re reminds me that I'm a person and I'm human and that, you know, with this tennis thing is, just what I do, but it's not who I am. So I think that helped me today because I realized regardless if I came home with this trophy or not, I'm still a human person and I still do a lot of good in this world outside of the court. So I think that reminded me. I think in the past I would just label myself as a tennis player and I felt like if I didn't do good in tennis, it meant I wasn't a good person. And I, it took a lot of growth to realize the opposite. And honestly, it's been a struggle. I used to put my tennis and compare it to like my self-worth um, when I would lose, I would think, you know, I was not worth it as a person. So having my parents always remind me um, that they love me regardless of how I do um, help me today. Okay, Bill, final question. Congratulations. Thanks. Bill, Bill Simons, Inside Tennis. This has been just such an incredible run for you, and you're, you're so good with words. So <laughs> I want to ask you if you would put this in one word or two or one phrase, what what has this experience meant to you or what's at the core of um, this experience and why? I don't know. I think the three words I would put it in is dreams come true um, and that this is crazy. I still have <laughs> no words. I don't think it can be put into words. Um, but, you know, there's a lit song lyric that I want to use for my Instagram caption and you know, it goes concrete jungle where dreams are made of. So thank you. I've just, yeah. And I guess that, that's it. that lyric is true. New York City is the city where dreams are made of. But yeah, Coco Goff is, uh, is your 2023 U.S. Open champion. She is without a doubt the story of the weekend. You know, unless Djokovic and Medvedev go six hours, you know, the the power of Coco winning is going to um, surpass 
any storyline that those two guys can do when the final gets underway in about 30 to 40 minutes here. So that's going to do it for part one of this podcast that's focusing on the women's championship. And um, in real time, it's going to be several hours now, but um, in just a moment for you, we'll be back with um, some reaction for the men's championship. All right, I will see you guys in a moment. Coco Goff is your women's singles winner. She is now a bona fide all-star, and as Ben Stiller said, I'd say there's potential. Somebody once told me the world is gonna roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. She was looking kind of dumb with her finger and her thumb in the shape of an L on her forehead. Well, the years start coming and they don't stop coming. Fed to the rules and I hit the ground running. Didn't make sense not to live for fun. Your brain gets smart, but your head gets dumb. So much to do, so much to see. So what's wrong with taking the back streets? You'll never know if you don't go. You'll never shine if you don't glow. Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star. Get the show on, get paid. And they say it gets colder You're bundled up now, wait till you get older But the media men beg to differ Judging by the hole in the satellite picture The ice we skate is getting pretty thin The water's getting warm so you might as well swim My world's on fire, how about yours? That's the way I like it and I'll never get bored Hey now, you're an all-star Get your game on, go play Hey now, you're a rock star Get the show on, get paid
Grinding rally to deliver Djokovic with a championship point. Forty. Sometimes to come sit in the player box, I don't think, but uh, it's a nice moment. Wow, John. He continues to amaze. He continues to exhaust the adjectives. Mm -hmm. Well, give me everything he has, and he had to dig pretty deep at that, that second set, that marathon second set. It was the biggest moment of tension and challenge for him. It was something special to see again. The drive, the hunger, the will that he still has after everything he's accomplished. It's, it's crazy. It's like one in a billion, these guys. Thank you, Brian. Let's hear from our finalist. He leads all players over the last five years on the hard courts in titles, finals, and wins. It's his third U.S. Open final in the last five years, Daniil Medvedev.
I just read your numbers, including a title. Something about New York brings out the best in you. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, I want to ask Novak, what are you still doing here? Come on. <laughs> I mean, uh, no, jokes apart, I mean, uh, what is it, our third final? Uh, maybe not the last, who uh, hope so, I mean, because you're probably going to be in many, in many more. I don't know when are you planning to, to slow down a little bit, but uh, congrats, uh, congrats to you and your team, I mean, 24. Uh, I feel like I have not a bad career and I have 20 titles, you have 24 Grand Slams, wow. And uh, so yeah, congrats to you and your team, you guys are amazing. Then uh, on the second note, I was here two years ago when I won and I was like, what a great... Uh, anniversary gift for my wife and stuff like this and uh, pretty shit one today <laughs> yeah uh, it's funny because dates usually change but today Sunday again is the anniversary so I thought like come on do it one more time but uh, yeah didn't happen Your box is always with you. Your wife's fantastic. First person to ever said you're going to be top 10. So a word for your box. Yeah, I want to thank uh, Gilles, Eric, Gaetan, first of all, for uh, being uh, already, I don't know, many years with me, eight years. So uh, hopefully, guys, we can, uh, we can do uh, one more time uh, this step, or maybe more than one more time. Uh, Oliver, Loic, Irina, David, I see there. <laughs> came down a little bit and uh, everybody who uh, my family and everyone who supports some of them are not here in New York but uh, everyone who supports me through this sometimes tough sometimes easy sometimes uh, happy sometimes sad journey uh, thanks a lot guys and Daniel finally a word for the two of you you expected this, as you've told me, when you beat Novak, he comes back a better Novak. What does this match up, what does it come to mean to you in your career? Oof, uh, I don't know, because uh, from one side I can say, and that's really, I find this amazing, that I beat Novak in the Grand Slam final, so that's probably at this moment the pinnacle of my career. And at the same time, maybe if he and Rafa didn't exist, well, that's not possible. I played five finals against him and I only managed to win one. So I don't know if it's good or, or bad, but, uh, you know, he, he pushes me to be better. And uh, I said this one time in, uh, in Australia, but I'm going to say it again because it's a different city, new people. Um, first, we met when I was probably 500 in the world. And he was super kind to me, you know, not, nothing special, but he treated me as a normal person where I was surprised. I was like, wow, that's amazing, you know. And he still does, nothing changed. 24, 30, 12 Grand Slams, nothing changes. And I think that's, uh, that's something great about a person, you can say. Thank you for that. And thank you for the tennis. And uh, last thing, guys, thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> I said it, I think, what was it? 
one and a half year ago I said last but not least thanks again to my team at this time last but not least thank you guys because uh, you're amazing uh, I mean this stadium is is special I said it I, I mean I came here one week before the tournament and I was like wow I want to play good here I want to I want to play good, I want to feel the energy of these people, of this crowd, and uh, I managed to do it, you know, I played good. I, I wanted to do better, but uh, you guys are pushing me all the time, so I really hope that, uh, that one more time in, in front of you I can, I can hold this trophy again. Thank you. Congratulations, you were great, Daniil, just great. On behalf of the USTA, Brian, if you would present Daniil Medvedev with the finalist trophy. And now, let them hear it, your champion, Novak Djokovic. Congratulations. Novak, 50 years ago at the US Open, Margaret Court won number 24. Total different era. You've come through the golden era. You have 24. What does it mean? <laughs> Well, uh, I don't know where to start. Um, it obviously means the world to me. Um, you know, I'm kind of repeating myself, but uh, I have to have to say it every time that I'm really living my childhood dream, you know, to compete at uh, the highest level in the sport that uh, has given me and my family so much, uh, you know, coming from uh, very difficult circumstances and adversities during 90s, couple of wars in our country and being able to, to push that through. Uh, especially for my parents, um, giving a lot of sacrifice to support me, to play. I love you, thank you so much. <clears throat> to, um, to support me to play the sport that is very expensive sport. Um, at that time, very expensive, not, not accessible, not affordable. Um, but, you know, I fell in love with the tennis. Uh, <laughs> no one has played tennis in my family before, so it was, uh, it was quite a choice, I must say. But uh, incredible resilience, uh, just uh, belief from my parents, from all the people around me. Uh, all these years, you know, my wife, my kids, my team, everyone that is there. This is your trophy as much as it's mine. This is your success. I love you. And to make the history, you know, of, the, of this sport is uh, just something truly remarkable and special. Obviously, in every in every possible way, in every possible meaning of the world of the word special. Um, yeah, it's it's hard to describe with the words. Um, you know, I had the childhood dream when I was seven, eight. I wanted to become the best player in the world and win Wimbledon trophy. That was that was the only thing I only thing I wanted. Um, but then when when I when I realized that, you know, obviously I started to dream new dreams and set new objectives, new goals. Uh, I never imagined that I would be here sitting, standing with you talking about 24 slams. I ne never thought that, that's, that that would be the reality. But, uh, you know, uh, the last couple of years I felt I have a chance. I have a shot at the history. Um, and why not grab it if it's presented? <laughs> why not? 
<laughs> well done. Enough talking about myself, you know, because Daniel said too many nice words and sorry I didn't start uh, congratulating you. I want to congratulate you for a fantastic uh, tournament. I'm sorry about the result today and uh, please don't get this in the wrong way. Happy anniversary to your wife. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It, it really, it comes, it comes from a good place, honestly. You know, it's not, uh, uh, if I knew that the anniversary is today, maybe, you know, the result. <laughs> um, Jokes aside, jokes aside, uh, Daniel has been incredibly, incredibly nice and kind to me, to my team, uh, his, his coach, everyone, you know, uh, I, I think you, since you were, you know, a, a junior, 14, 15, you started training with your coach and it's nice to see the evolution of, of your relationship, professional relationship, what you have achieved, what you have done and I know that there is a lot more for you to achieve in the, in the future years, so good luck with that for sure, you will, you will win more slams, no doubt. I, I just want to say that, uh, you know, you, sir, mentioned what you love about Daniil and, and I agree with you. I think he has definitely the most authentic personality out there and never change, please, with your celebrations, with your, you know, comments. I, I love it, you know, definitely the best. Um, what else, what else should I say? Mamba mentality. Mamba, yeah. This one, yeah. memory of the late Kobe Bryant, the Mamba mentality, and the Novak will to win. Where does it come from? How do you do it? I thought uh, of doing this um, t-shirt, you know, eventually if I get a chance to, to win the, the tournament. It was about seven days ago. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't share it with anyone up to a few days ago when I asked my people to help me out to make these shirts. Um, um, Kobe, uh, Kobe was close, uh, close friend. We we chatted a lot about uh, about the winning, you know, winners mentality. When I was struggling, you know, with an injury and trying to make my comeback, work my way back uh, to the top of the game. You know, he was uh, one of the people that I rely on the most. He was always there for any kind of counsel, advice, any kind of support, in a most friendly way. Uh, so of course, uh, what happened a few years ago, and him and his daughter passing, hurt me uh, deeply. And uh, I thought, you know, 24 is the jersey that he wore when he became a legend of Lakers and uh, world basketball. So I thought, you know, it could be a nice symbolic thing to uh, to acknowledge him for all the things he's done. Thank you, Novak, and congratulations. And as we celebrate 50 years of equal prize money at the U.S. Open, Novak Djokovic, you also win $3 million. To present the check, Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business. And now, a tip of the hat to your longevity. At age 36, the oldest man to win this title, we have someone who you played against to present the trophy, and he's been retired for a decade. In honor of Andy Roddick's 
20 years ago, winning this crown, Andy Roddick present the trophy. And welcome back to part two, everybody. As we just heard, Novak Djokovic is your men's champion. And who else better to discuss this result than Bill Gebhardt, who's been on this podcast before. Without further ado, let's get to my talk with Bill about today's match. Hey, man, can you hear me? All right. All right, I already hit the record button, so let's jump right into it, shall we? Sounds great. So we just saw Novak Djokovic win his record-extending 24th Grand Slam singles championship over Daniil Medvedev, score in the final 6-3, Bill, I've been talking for so long already. Because I've recorded other segments, so this is all you, man. What's your reaction to this? <laughs> thanks, thanks. Well, Trip, thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure. Um, you know, it's easy for me. I'm a big Djokovic fan, but you know, it really, it doesn't take a whole lot um, to uh, you know, even if you're going to be honest and accurate and and just tell things how they are. I mean, what what is this guy capable of? I mean, <laughs> it's really outrageous at this point. I mean, he, this dude is you know he's in great shape but he's he's going to play at this level another three years but in any event congratulations to him he uh um he put away uh medvedev and um yeah his 24th uh major this is just insane um i'm becoming more of a fan with each event that he participates in and of course he wins it seems like he's winning every event he's in he was <laughs> um this is a special time for everyone i mean if you're a tennis fan you really you know some people don't like him but you know what just just enjoy his tennis it's so exquisite and it's so inspiring it's amazing he was one bad tiebreak away from winning the grand slam bill yeah i think he smashed his racket for that right (laughs) but (laughs) even today when he won you could see the emotion there and i think it's still kind of a residual of the fact that he couldn't play certain grand slams and the fact that he's come back this season off of that, and he's won three out of the four, I think that was in his head today too. Yeah, it's bittersweet. It's got to be. It's amazing. Um, this guy, uh, he's a true champion. Listen, he's the greatest of all time. <laughs> um, he's the Wayne, Wayne Gretzky of our uh, of our tennis sport. Good, good NHL reference there, Bill. I was gonna maybe sneak in a little Flyers question at the end, but maybe we'll save that. Um, okay. Um, um, for Djokovic's place in history, um, with this win, 
he's too clear of Nadal now. So even if Nadal comes back next year and has one of his trademark miracle injury comeback slam wins, he would still be behind in the record. So that gives Djokovic some breathing room. Yeah, it sure does. And uh, like I said, I mean, he. I, somebody mentioned on TV, I think, uh, I think it was Darren Cahill or Cahill or somebody, but um, I mean, he's, he's going to play at this level, probably barring injury another three years minimum. And, you know, that's 12 more chances at slams. So how many more is he going to get? I mean, he's definitely going to separate himself from the crowd, I'm thinking. So, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about the actual match. So I thought Medvedev came out flat in the first set. He dropped his first service game. That was the only break for a while. You know, Djokovic closes out the first set pretty easily. Second set was an hour and 44 minutes. Um, what'd you think wow. about that part of the match? You know, I didn't realize it was that long, but yeah, that was that's a that's a pretty long set. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that it felt like we were all kind of slogging through it until we got toward the uh, the meat and potatoes of it toward the end there, and then the, to to get the tie break on. Um, I mean, Medi needed to win that, and uh, you know, there were moments already that Djokovic was looking like he was beat down. I think at one moment that, that when he had those that, that that problem with his leg or whatever it was, I, th- I think it was they didn't talk about it, but I think it was. <laughs> I, uh, I think it was lactic acid buildup, honestly. I mean, they were running around so much. I think it just slowed them down, shut them down for a little bit. And then uh, once that subsided and the body, uh, the chemistry, you know, normalized, it was back to game on. And, uh, you know, like I said, Medi needed to win that set. And he tried. He, he darn near did it. He had a set point And, you know, he wins that set. It's 1-1. And, man, we're, we're still watching tennis right now. Oh, yes. You know, maybe for another two hours. I mean, who knows what would have happened. Um, but it didn't happen that way. And, you know, of course, that created a mountain that Medi had to climb, and that's very difficult to do. Third set was a formality. Yeah, exactly. Where, what's Medvedev's place in the game right now? Well, you know, in the game today, men's tennis, you, you've got Djokovic and Alcaraz in no particular order, by the way. And, uh, you know, you kind of have to include Medvedev in the, in the discussion there. So there's like... Uh, you know, this is a modified big three, I think, that we're looking at. And, you know, my opinion, I think there's a fourth guy looking to crack in, and that's uh, Alexander Zverev. He's about 100. He's almost 100%. He's done some amazing things this year coming back. And uh, to me, it's those four guys. And, you know, with Djokovic, a uh, slight favorite, and with Alcaraz, a slight favorite, depending on who you're talking to. Yeah. Um, let's see. Um, so a- anything else about the – the match in particular today you want to go over? I thought it wasn't the best match ever. It was more about the result to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it was fun and all that and just amazing accomplishments and, you know, whatever. And uh, Medi was really strong. I, I don't think this – I mean, he's a great player. But, yeah, the match was more of a formality almost, it seems like. And uh, it certainly wasn't the intensity of the, uh, the Cincinnati final that we saw not too long ago. <laughs> yeah. I thought – Overall, Bill, I thought the men's Grand Slams this year were very good. I think this U.S. Open was probably the weakest of the four overall. The men's tournament here wasn't really that compelling, but overall, great year. Yeah, yeah, I would agree exactly. And maybe part of the reason for the U.S. Open this year not being too compelling would be, uh, yeah, there were a lot of no names that went pretty deep, and uh, yeah, it was just 
I mean, yeah. I, I follow tennis pretty good, and uh, I didn't recognize half the names in the first few rounds. Borna Goyo made the round of 16. Um, Matteo Arnoldi, yeah. Yep, yep. Um, yeah. Um, did you catch any of Ben Shelton this tournament? Yes, I did. Um, in my other little circle of tennis buddies, um, there's a big Ben Shelton fan because he went to the same college here in Florida. I'm from Florida now. I'm, I'm in Jacksonville area. And that was his boy. And he, he started calling Shelton about a year ago when he just started, you know, breaking onto the scene. And, um, you know, he's been preaching him up. And now all of a sudden, you know, 12 months later, I mean, he's had a hell of a run the last two or three months. And, uh, you know, then you hear, oh, my God. I mean, I was caught off guard, too, with the 149-mile-an-hour second serve, whatever it was, some crazy <laughs> thing. I mean, this kid has the biggest serve in the game now. I mean – I don't know why he doesn't always hit it, but if he starts hitting that every time, I mean, this, you know, he's he's someone to reckon with, I think, you know? What do you make of his on-court behavior? You know, I, I don't really like him. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't like him, man. I, I, you know, it's weird. I hear a lot of people, you know, talking like Djokovic is cocky and this and arrogant. They don't like him, whatever. My gosh, some of these kids are coming up. Where's his respect, man? He... he he talked off Novak like he was a, you know, no no big deal, just another player. Yeah, I thought he was okay, nothing special, something like that. He said, I was like, my God, at least have some, at least have some respect. I mean, you're 20 years old. This guy's the the greatest of all time, and you know, I didn't hear one word that sounded like you you know you would hear from Rafa or Roger or probably any other pro. You know, that saying, oh, what an honor to play. I mean, this is just amazing. I, I was on the court with, you know, Novak, and I think, you know, I'm going to give it my best next time and whatever. None of that. I mean, this guy's a little cocky, maybe a little bit too much for my liking, but uh, he's going to be around, I think, and we're going to deal with him. So Djokovic made the phone hanging up motion after he beat, beat Shelton that Shelton had made, you know, a couple times in the tournament. I was shocked. And how many people on the internet had a problem with this? I loved what Djokovic did. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I didn't even, I didn't even understand it for a little while. In fact, it was this morning that I, I started googling it around. I was on YouTube. I was like, man, let me see this thing. I want to know what happened. Start reading the comments. Now I understand what happened. I think it was awesome. Even you know, that's that's Shelton's way. Fine, I'd have a problem with that. And then Novak, I didn't have a problem with that either. And he's trying to have fun. This guy's an old man out there. So uh, you know. Why not? It's all good sport. When Shelton got a taste of his own medicine, he couldn't handle it. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I don't like him. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, a couple other topics real quick. Um, we were both at Cincinnati. Um, how was your experience like this year as a fan? Yeah, it was great. I, um, I loved it, and... Uh... You know, part of it was because this year we drove our RV in and it was amazing. We actually got some, you know, they were putting all the RVs up close. So it was just outside the exit there. And um, we were able to go in and out, take some naps and do whatever, you know, because we were in the middle of some long days and um, inside the event. It was fantastic. And uh, we were able to get the fullest experience because of the way we set up for it. And, uh, yeah, I, I love going to Cincinnati. Uh, we'll be going again next year. And, uh Saw a lot of tennis. Looking to see a lot again next year, every year, and um, yeah, it's my it's one of my favorite events. Absolutely, and the calendar is out for next year, and it is coming back. So at least for one more year, we get classic Cincinnati. So that's good. Oh, awesome! So you, I guess, uh, hopefully, I'll be joining you again. 
that's the plan. Yep. Um, nice. You know, you never know with these things because unexpected things happen all the time. But the plan is definitely to be back next year. It's gonna happen. We're gonna make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so nice, so special this year too because Novak was allowed to play. He was allowed into the country, and he, you know, the guy comes in, he wins both tournaments. <laughs> yep, Un- unbelievable, isn't it? It really is, it man. Is. I mean, you, you know, even if you don't like, I said, even if you don't like the guy, what he's doing is so special. You know. Don't miss it. If you're a tennis fan, don't miss it. Enjoy it. Watch it. It's great tennis. And, you know, we might not see another guy like him around ever. No. So, you know? And Alcaraz, to, if if Alcaraz wanted to catch him, he would have needed to win two or three majors a year, like, for his whole career. And this year, Alcaraz only got one. So he's already off the pace. Yeah, that's insane. At, at what, 20, 20 years old? Yeah. Yeah, I mean... And, it, you know, it just it also speaks nothing of, of injury. I mean, my God, he plays. He's this guy. Alcaraz is the fastest human being I've ever seen in tennis. And, uh, you know, when you're when you're when you're flying around like that, I don't care how old you are. I mean, man, I just hope he I hope he can play a full career because it'd be amazing to see what he can do. But um, yep, he missed a major this year due to injury. So it's already a problem. It's already a problem. That's right. And uh, like I said, I hope it doesn't build from there i would love to see him have zero injuries but you know almost every one of these guys end up with at least one injury in their yep. career Djokovic did almost all of them you know federer rafa rafa multiple um he plays a style kind of like rafa so i mean you know if it doesn't do you in how, how well are you going to be able to keep your level i mean it's it's almost impossible to do what novak is doing let's since we're talking about him let's just spend a second on alcaraz so yeah. his season he missed the australian open um, he comes back. He dominates the middle of the year. Indian Wells title. Um, um, I think he won. Did he win Madrid? Maybe I can't remember. Um, then you know he wins Wimbledon, becomes number one. He took down Djokovic on that special day. And since then, he's lost three in a row. Lost in Canada. Lost in Cincinnati. Lost here. So he's good, but he has uh, room for improvement. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, on one hand, you could say, you know, the the party's over, you know, the the the, the tour is is catching up, yep. understanding, trying to figure out ways to give him a hard time on the court. You know, he's all, he's had a couple tournaments where he's had to go three sets, um, you know, one at one one round after another. I mean, you know, maybe the tour is caught up to you know understanding how to pressure this guy. But with that said, I mean, he's still he seems to pull out all the shots that he's just never seen before. I mean, this guy, nobody's like that either. So that this guy's. Uh, He's a force to be reckoned with, but um, yeah, he's he might you might say he's uh falling a little bit short lately. We'll see what happens. Yep. Um, even if he doesn't win all the time, he's still a special kid. Oh yeah, I mean, he, even if he doesn't win, I, I don't know how anyone can beat him in the early rounds. I mean, he's you know the only people that are like I said, I included him in the top four. The only people that are really reasonably expected to be able to even beat this guy, I mean, are the same four in the conversation. You, you know, you got. You got Djokovic and uh, Medvedev and uh, maybe Zverev. I mean, who else can beat this kid or any of them, really? Now, um, you mentioned Zverev, so that's going to transition into the next one. Zverev, I thought he played very well this tournament and, you know, the last couple weeks as well. If he hadn't played the five-hour match against Sinner, he could have gone – he could have given Alcaraz more of a test, I think, right? Yeah, I would agree 100%. I mean, that was a, you know, on one hand, going into the center match, 
He, he's on an upward trajectory. He's improving constantly from the injury over a year ago, and he's on his way. And I'm thinking, okay, he's almost back to where he was, and where he was was accelerating upward. We don't know yet where his ceiling is. So I'm thinking, you know, then he gets this five-hour match, and I'm like, oh, man, that's tough because that, that affects everybody, even the big three during the middle of the heyday. I mean, you know, five-hour match, who are you playing next? You're in trouble. You know, it's going to be very difficult. Yep. So, Bill, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, and he wasn't really even all the way back yet. He, By his own admission, he was saying that a couple times. So it's like he really wasn't. So I think he surprised himself. So with that said, it's going to be very exciting and very interesting to see where he goes from here because I, I just have a feeling that um, I'm in that camp. I, I think he's going to do some big things next year. I really do. You picked him to win this year, so maybe next year's the year. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I picked him this year, but I think it was maybe too soon. Just like when Djokovic came back from the elbow injury and a lot of these guys, I mean, Sometimes it takes a long time to get back to your level because the, the margins are so thin. You know, there's just, it's in, these guys are animals. <laughs> so that goes that transitions to this topic here. So yep. I think this is the first time we've done a show in nine months, which is incredible. Um, so the last time we spoke, we were sitting at Dose Coffee on December 23rd or whatever it was, and we went over the survey questions. So let's check in on them now. Um, so, okay. Wow, it's a while. Yeah. Yeah. So the questions that I asked this year, I asked them to four people, myself included. Um, who will finish 2023 as the WTA number one? All four of us said Iga Sviantek. We might all be wrong about that. You know, there's still a couple months left, and that's not decided yet. But we were wrong. Yeah, it's looking like Coco now, right? She Sabalenka. can get up there and take. Oh yeah, yeah. Sab, what am I saying? Yeah. I'm on the Coco train, as you can tell. Yep. <laughs> and next question was, who will finish 2023 as the WT as the ATP number one? I said Casper Rude. Um, Tammy, who's also been on this show, who you've complimented before, she picked Djokovic. My mom picked Djokovic, and you picked Alcaraz. So I was dead wrong. Casper Rude is not even close. And it's going to be a horse race in the fall tournaments between Djokovic and Alcaraz. So you pick Carlos. You still feel good about that? Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel good about it, but I mean, um, there's a couple of 1000 tournaments left to make it up. How many there's, we got Shanghai and we have Paris and the year end finals left. So that's 3,500. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. Um, it's going to be a race. I mean, they're, they're about even Alcaraz and Djokovic in my book, are pretty much dead even. I mean, I, 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 it's going to be really interesting to see the next time they face off in a major event, who pulls that one out? Because, you know, if it's Alcaraz, then it's like, all right, it makes sense, man. The kid is amazing, and you know, these guys are trading blows, right? But if it's Djokovic, it's like, hey, wait a minute, what? He just took two now in a row after losing in, uh, you know, in 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 Wimbledon, and uh, you know, maybe Djokovic has him figured out now. So it's like very interesting, but I still think at this point. It's a coin flip. It's going to be one of those two. Yep, I agree, and that's what makes it exciting. Next couple yep. of questions have been settled for the year. So I asked for who will the major winners be. Um, for the We'll just do um, the two of us here. So for the WTA, we both had Sviantek winning two, Goff winning one, and then I had Kinwen Zhang, and then you had Jessica Pagula. So we both got two out of four for the season. So 50%. That's a nice kind of baseline guess there. That's not bad. Um, for the ATP, so here's who I had. I had Djokovic 1, 
Alcaraz won, Sinner won, and Rude won. So I had a four-way split. So in reality, Djokovic won three and Alcaraz won the other one. So I finished with two out of four, correct. And you had Djokovic two, Alcaraz one, and Zverev one. So, you know, take the Zverev one and move it over, and you got three out of four. So you beat me in the predictions. You got three out of the four correct. Well done. Thank you. Um, um, uh, next couple ones, we said, will Rafael Nadal play an ATP match in 2024? I said no, and you said yes. So you're going to end up being right on that one too. So you got me. Well, wait a minute. You said 2024, right? Yep. And Rafa's planning to come back. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, he didn't come back yet, but yeah. I, yep. I, I imagine. Yeah. Okay. And um, will Novak Djokovic play next year? We all said yes. And yes, he will. Yep. Yep. Breakout player of the year. Now, I didn't write down the names of the of the pickers here. I just wrote down who they said. So, But I remember I said Jensen Brooksby and Naomi Osaka. I could not have been more wrong because, like, three days after we taped that, Osaka pulled out for the whole year, and Jensen Brooksby this year, he hasn't done anything. So no. I missed Gosh. that. Somebody said Ben Shelton and Emma Raducanu. Was that you? I don't, um, I don't know. The, I, I do like Raducanu. And the other one, the last one I have here is Taylor Fritz and Jessica Pagula. Does that sound more like you? Uh, anyway, I don't know. Yeah. I don't remember. What was what was that question again? If you don't mind, breakout player of the year. Breakout play? No, it wasn't. Oh, oh maybe it might. I don't even know. Yeah, man. we'll I think, have to go back and listen. Yeah, because I think I believe Fritz was going to have a breakout as well. But I know my buddy was bringing up Shelton, but that might have been early a year ago. I might not have said him. Right. Um, let's see here. Um, tennis is fun, right? It's the best sport there is. Yeah, and you know what I liked at the end? I was watching the post-match, you know, interview with Djokovic. There, the the uh, I forget who it was. The guy goes, um, "Tennis is the safest sport in the world." And um, I was like, "Oh, it's so nice to hear that." And you know, it, it's so good for you for your entire life. So it's I'm so glad because I play, as you know, uh, I play three times a week for two to three hours, hands down. And um, I'm really glad that I am able to, and I'm really glad that I do because. You know, I'll be 60 in a couple of months, and I, and I think I could play another 10 years at a pretty decent level. So what a great sport indeed. Absolutely. Last word, anything else you want to say about Djokovic? Now's the time. Let's hear it. Oh, you know, I don't, I don't, what else can you say? I mean, I don't, I'll tell you what. I watch him, and, you know, thanking everybody and talking about Serbia and this and that. You know, this guy, it, it's so difficult. It must be getting really weird to – answer the same questions over and over again and you know he's always looks like he has this awkward smile almost so it's, it's almost like he, he doesn't and he's even said a few times he doesn't want to come across being too arrogant or anything but i mean what's a champion supposed to say when they ask you how do you feel and this and then you know how do you think you played and well geez i don't know i felt like i played fantastic but he can't really even say that you know so it's just an amazing thing to watch and i, I think he's you know whether he's trying too hard or not i think he's more humble than people give him credit for and I think he's an amazing, an amazing player, an amazing person. I just do. I'm learning more about him every year and more and more, it seems. And I'm surprised. Um, another thing is, you know, I think a lot of people may not know how hard it is um, to do what he's doing. I mean, it, 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 you know, we're always talking about it. But, you know, in most sports, 
you know, when you're in first place, the rest of the field is 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 really focused on taking you down. When you're at the top, every time you take the court or every time you take the playing field, whatever sport you're in, you're facing the most, you know, the most focused opposition that's looking to beat you because you're the you're the bar, you know? And it's like day in and day, this guy's facing that every single time. You know, if you think about how other players may be out there, but you know, it's just another day at the office many times for almost all of them. That's not the case with Djokovic, man. And maybe that's what, what maybe that's a main factor why he's so good. He's constantly facing, you know, massive um seething. I mean, these people want to kill him. <laughs> it's like almost they want to win bad, but you know. It's not happening, like you said. It's not happening. That's all I got to say about him. <laughs> um, Bill, I know it's late. You did me a solid coming on here. I appreciate that, man. Um, you know, of all the people that, you know, that are, you know, friends of mine, you're the one that gets it the most. So it's always fun chatting to you about tennis. Well, thanks a lot, man. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, we got to do it more, a little more often. I got to do a better job, actually, because I, I, I really enjoy being on your show. Oh, I, I enjoy having you. It's great. You, oh, awesome. Thank you. Might you might be turning into a regular bill. You're getting sort of promoted here. Oh, good, good. All right. Hey, you know what? Let me know. <laughs> All right, Bill. Um, thanks for coming on. Thank you. You got it. Thanks. Thank you. All right. That was Bill. Always enjoy talking to him. Next item on the calendar here. I want to take quite a bit of time here to read aloud a investigative piece that ran in the Washington Post this week about match fixing at the lower levels of tennis. I think it is important to give a spotlight to this issue even during a Grand Slam, which is the opposite of the low end of tennis, especially important during a Grand Slam because this is when the most people watch and listen. So here's what's coming up on the rest of the pod here. Number one, um, I'm going to read this article. It's going to take over an hour. Number two, that we'll hear from our men's finalists today. Then number three, we'll do a wrap-up segment. Um, I already recorded my read aloud, so I'll offer my comments at the front before I get into it. I think that this is a part of tennis that I don't really think about that much. I'm not really a gambler. Um... Players get gambling abuse online all the time, especially from players that lost money betting on tennis matches, but I never gave it much thought beyond that. Um, sometimes there are, there are live scoring websites that ostensibly exist for the gamblers to bet on matches on a point-by-point -point basis. For the junkies like myself... I really I like those sites if I do go on them very occasionally to get a score just because I want to know what the score is of a particular match or I wanted to know the point by point of how a game went and I might have missed that you know official apps sometimes don't have point by point information and seeing that is important to me as a tennis junkie but those websites don't really mean anything to me on a gambling level but I'm in the very small minority because most of the people that go on those sites, they do it to bet on tennis matches of any kind. And, you know, that's a type of person that will bet on literally any sporting event in the world of any level of significance just because they have to have a bet. And I think that's kind of sad. 
Um, I think that, um, yes, I'm obsessed with tennis and stuff that I like. I typically tend to obsess over them, but I don't obsess over them in that way. Like, I like the game aspect of games. I don't like the sicko sort of, um, like, degenerate gambler in the negative sense way of obsessing about stuff. Um, I think the guy in this article has a lot of problems. The main figure that I disc- that is uh, mentioned many times, he seemed like a lost kid that didn't get the support he needed. If I had a criticism of this article, it's that it kind of presents him in a favorable light, I would argue. Like, this is some kind of virtuous thing that this guy pulled off, fixing all these matches. Um, and I would like to uh, state categorically that I do not think that is the case. Um, I think white-collar crime matters, and I think people don't take that seriously enough in society in general. Um, there's a fair way to do things, and uh, this guy did not do it. Um, I don't want to have too much reaction to this beyond what I just shared. Um, I don't think that matches that we see are fixed. Once you get to the Masters 1000 level and above, the matches are not being fixed. Um, the, the stuff that's discussed in this article is stuff that I really have never even gotten into in all these hours of doing Trips Tennis Talk. This is stuff that most of us aren't going to ever see. Um, but it is a problem, and you know, guys up at the very top of the game, like Djokovic, have weighed in on the financial sustainability of the sport for those outside the top 100. It's something that does not exist, and it's something that uh, needs to exist for the game to get better. Um, So here is my extended read-aloud of this Washington Post story, and then after the story's done, we're going to cut to the press conferences of um, Medvedev and Djokovic, so if you want to hear those, um, either you're going to have to wait for it, or you can skip ahead about an hour 15. All right, here's the article. All right, next topic I want to discuss here, there's a Washington Post article that has been making the rounds, talking about a match fixer. In the last Megapod, towards the end, I played the audio about the Chris and Martina feature. There is no robot audio for this, so I am going to read this aloud. I like tennis feature stories, so let's give this one a spin. I want to use this platform to get this content out there, so... Here it is. The maestro, the man who built the biggest match-fixing ring in tennis, by Kevin Seif, September 7th, 2023, for the Washington Post. Brussels. On the morning of his arrest, Grigor Sargissian was still fixing matches. Four cell phones buzzed on his nightstand with calls and messages from around the world. Sargissian was sprawled on a bed in his parents' apartment, making deals between snatches of sleep. It was 3 a.m. in Brussels, which meant it was 8 a.m. in Thailand. 
the W25 Hawaiian tournament was about to start. Sargissian was negotiating with professional tennis players preparing for their matches, athletes he had assiduously recruited over years. He needed them to throw a game or a set, or even just a point, so he and a global network of associates could place bets on the outcomes. That's how Sargissian had become rich. As gambling on tennis exploded into a $50 billion industry, he had infiltrated the sport, paying pros more to lose matches or parts of matches than they could make by winning tournaments. Sargissian had crisscrossed the globe building his roster, which had grown to include more than 180 professional players across five continents. It was one of the biggest match-fixing rings in modern sports, large enough to earn Sargissian a nickname whispered throughout the tennis world, the maestro. This Washington Post investigation of Sargissian's criminal enterprise and how the changing nature of gambling has corrupted tennis is based on dozens of interviews with players, coaches, investigators, tennis officials, and match-fixers. The Post obtained tens of thousands of Sargissian's text messages, hundreds of pages of internal European law enforcement documents, and the interrogation transcripts of players. By the time he was communicating with the players in Thailand, Sargissian had honed his tactics. He had learned to nurture the ones who were nervous. He knew when to be businesslike and direct, communicating his offers like an auctioneer. That was Sargissian's approach on the night in June 2018 that would be his last as a match-fixer. He explained to Alexandrina Nedenova, a Bulgarian player struggling to break into the world's top 200, that she could choose how severely she wanted to tank a set. He sent the texts in English. If she lost her first service game, she would make a thousand euros, he wrote. If she lost the second one, she would make 1,200 euros. It didn't matter if she won the match, only that she lost those games. Nadenova seemed willing. Give me some time to confirm, she wrote. As Sargissian waited, a Belgian police SWAT team was on its way to his parents' house. The team had been planning the raid for months, the culmination of a two-year investigation that spanned Western Europe. Sargissian placed the phone on, on his bedside table next to the others he used to message players and associates. He sprawled on his mattress, trying not to fall asleep. Then, from downstairs, he heard hushed voices speaking over walkie-talkies. He cracked open the door to his room and saw several police officers and a Belgian Malinois. The officers spotted their target, a short, chubby man in pajamas. They sprinted up the stairs and into Sargissian's room. Sargissian lunged for his phones, but the officers got to them first. They put him in handcuffs and listed the charges against him. Money laundering and fraud. I know what this is about, Sargissian said. The information on his devices would provide a remarkable window into what has become the world's most manipulated sport, according to betting regulators. Thousands of texts 
gambling receipts, and bank transfers laid out Sargassian's ascent in remarkable detail, showing how an Armenian immigrant in Belgium with no background in tennis had managed to corrupt a sport with a refined, moneyed image. Sargassian described himself as a kind of Robin Hood, a patron who flouted the law and the ethics of tennis to reimburse its poorest players. The bulk of the sport's 1,300 tournaments are far-flung and offer little prize money. Some are so small that they are held on high school courts, paying winners as little as $2,352. And yet those same obscure matches, a long way from the luster of Wimbledon, have become vehicles for billions of dollars in gambling. When he met recruits, Sargassian introduced himself as a sponsor and a lifelong fan of the sport. He played down the illegality of match-fixing, wondering aloud how something so easy could be classified as a crime. It was my entire life, said Sargassian, 33, during interviews conducted over 10 hours in which he described his criminal enterprise. As investigators got closer to arresting him, they concluded that Sargassian was working on behalf of a transnational criminal syndicate based in Armenia. He was sending millions of dollars to a man in the country's capital, Yerevan. The Sargassian investigation would lead tennis officials to issue a string of lifetime bans and suspensions from the sport. But even as they attempted to purge his network from the tour, more match-fixing alerts poured in. When it came time to prosecute Sargassian this spring, an attorney for professional tennis, Mathieu Bert, described the scale of the network to a Belgian courtroom. One of the largest max-fixing files ever to surface in the world, Bert said in his opening statement. He told the judge about the trove of evidence found on Sargassian's phones. There was more information that eluded investigators on devices that Sargassian had used and discarded. His story pointed to a larger problem facing the sport. The current results are, thus, the tip of the iceberg, Barrett said. By 2016, players began whispering about a man known as the Maestro. He went by other names, too. Gregory, Greg, Gigi, and Tonton. Some players knew him as Ragnar, after the Viking warrior. He would appear, out of nowhere, at a tournament in Valencia, Spain, speaking Spanish, ferrying players to the fanciest restaurant in the city in his Jaguar. Then he was on the sidelines of a tournament in Belgium, speaking perfect Russian. He appeared at a Berlin nightclub with German players. He made reservations at an exclusive restaurant in the south of France with a well-known coach from the United States. He bought diamond rings for players' wives. He paid for flights. He handed out cell phones and the keys to an empty Brussels apartment. Players spoke of his charm, his seemingly endless supply of cash, his ability to shift among five languages... It was as if he strolled out of a European country club and was suddenly a fixture at professional tennis matches. Everyone in the tennis world knows that Maestro does match-fixing. Mick Lescure, a former French pro who collaborated with Sargassian, told French police in 2019, according to a transcript of the interrogation. 
he could make it so that two opponents playing each other are both working for him. But none of the players knew much about the maestro. Very few even knew his real name. Grigor Sargissian was born in 1990 in Armavir, Armenia, near the border with Turkey. He came to Brussels when he was nine. His parents cleaned houses and worked in construction. They lived in St. Jose, the city's poorest neighborhood and an arrival point for migrants from around the world. Sargissian was struck by the wealth and power that lay only a short walk from Saint, Saint Jose. It was less than two miles from the European Parliament and some of the city's most glamorous residences. He and his friends slipped into fancy grocery stores, stealing caviar, lobster, and champagne, and fleeing with their hands full. On the weekends, Sargissian found a place in the city's competitive chess scene, where his life in St. Jossa felt like a skin he could shed. He showed up in baggy shorts and a t-shirt and rose through the ranks. At 13, after winning a local tournament, he played against Anatoly Karpov, the former world chess champion. Sargissian liked the feeling of control chess gave him, he said, the way he could bend the game to his mind. It was, for a while, that the thing that made him feel most powerful. Then, one day during a game, Sargissian felt a seed of doubt. He was considering his next move when the stakes suddenly felt overwhelming. One wrong move and he was done, his opponent ready to destroy him. It was a feeling that began to surface almost every time he played. His brain froze, as if a synapse had misfired. I became paranoid. You start to think, everyone is trying to hurt and trap me, he said. At 16, Sargissian quit chess forever. Instead, he took to walking aimlessly through the streets of Brussels. Once, he passed a betting office where the French Open was playing on television. It was the first time he'd ever watched a tennis match. He was transfixed. When his high school required students to sign up for a sport, Sargissian chose tennis. His Armenian friends in St. Jossa joked that he was trying too hard to assimilate. His French had become impeccable. He dreamed of becoming a powerful lawyer. Now he was playing a sport in which even the scoring system seemed designed to obfuscate. But when he returned to his neighborhood from tennis practice, Sargissian would drop his academic French. He wanted to prove his street smarts however he could. In high school, he was caught stealing a live chicken. I could play two different characters, Sargissian said. By graduation, his friends who had once stolen lobsters and caviar were fixtures at the neighborhood bookmaker. They fell rapidly into debt by betting on soccer, Sargissian said their conversations revolving around their most recent wagers. It was all they talked about. They were on their phones constantly checking scores, checking odds, he said. What about tennis, he wondered. Sargissian learned that you could now bet on thousands of obscure matches around the world. Bookmakers were promoting wagers on tournaments at the margins of the sport. In some cases, the winners of these futures or challengers tournaments earned barely enough to pay for their hotel rooms. A poor player, he thought, could be a corruptible one. It was like I put my finger on the weakness, he said. 
Sargassian pored over the tour schedules, the hundreds of tournaments in cities so small that he hadn't heard of them, with the same journeymen lugging their own gear from one country to the next. Like him, these players lived on the border between poverty and wealth. Sargassian thought, what would they be willing to do for a few thousand dollars? I needed to try, he said. When most people watch a tennis match, they don't see a financial instrument. They see a display of pure athleticism, players returning serves at 130 miles per hour, and alchemy of power and control. But Sargassian learned that almost every professional tennis match in the world now serves a second purpose as a vehicle for gambling. By 2014, you could go online or walk into a bookmaker's shop and bet on tens of thousands of matches a year across 65 countries. He learned that a sport that telegraphed its aristocratic bona fides, a gentleman's game, was an oddly welcoming place to commit fraud. Sargassian was part of a great tradition of tennis gamblers, a pastime nearly as old as the sport itself. For decades, they placed wagers on major tournaments, like the U.S. Open and Wimbledon. Bobby Riggs, the U.S. singles champion in the 30s and 40s, was known to bet on his own matches. I've got to have a bet going in order to play my best, Riggs wrote in his 1973 memoir, Court Hustler. But Sargassian could tell tennis gambling was about to enter a new era. Widespread internet access and liberalized gambling laws made it possible to place bets on low-level tournaments in distant cities. You could bet on anything. A point? A game? A set? Professional tennis is divided into three tours. The International Tennis Federation, ITF, covering the lowest tier of competition, and the Association of Tennis Professionals, ATP Tour, and the Women's Tennis Association, WTA, which host the sport's most elite matches and the mid-level Challenger Series. The ITF and Challenger tournaments are pipelines for young talent and way stations for aging players struggling to stay in the sport. The tours hold more than 60,000 matches a year in the cities from Brazzaville, Republic of Congo, to Aktobi, Kazakhstan, to Toulouse, France. Even as players complained about not making a sustainable income, the ITF invited wagers on its obscure matches, signing a five-year, $70 million deal with Swiss data company Sport Radar in 2016 that gave gamblers access to live updates on non-televised matches. That information allowed people like Sargissian to place real-time bets, even though they couldn't watch the matches. In the years following the sport radar deal, gambling on tennis soared. Between 2016 and 2022, wagers surged more than 30% to $50 billion. By 2018, more than a quarter of that total was bet on the sport's lowest-level matches, according to bookmaker data. Whilst these deals have generated considerable funds for the sport, they have also greatly expanded the available markets for betting on the lowest levels of professional tennis, said an independent review on corruption in tennis, commissioned by the professional federations in 2018. It said the deal was undertaken with insufficient diligence. But in 2021, 
the ITF extended its sport radar deal for three years, despite earlier concerns from the review board. This March, the ATP Tour signed a similar deal with Sport Radar, covering both the world's top tournaments and mid-level challenger events, with the latter having already proved vulnerable to match fixers, including Sargassian. The ITF says the probability of a match being fixed fell to 0.1% in 2022, partly because of the creation of the International Tennis Integrity Agency, which the Federation helps fund. Tennis officials argue that providing approved data to gamblers prevents wagers from being placed on distorted or undistorted or fabricated scorekeeping. Deals like the Sport Radar one are crucial to integrity protection, Stuart Miller, the ITF's senior executive director, said in a statement. Unofficial data presents a greater integrity risk including supply to unlicensed betting operators over which there is little insight. Andreas Kranich, Sport Radar's executive vice president, said in a statement that the company's transmission of match data is an important measure to safeguard integrity to minimize the risk of a black market because the demand is covered and the event is monitored. The ATP did not respond to multiple requests for comment. Tennis now ranks third among the most wagered-on sports in the world after soccer and basketball. In part because of the game's global footprint, more money is bet on tennis than on American football and baseball combined, according to the International Betting Integrity Association. Even the most elite tennis players have been swarmed with offers from match fixers. Novak Djokovic, one of the top men's players in the world, said he was once offered $200,000 to lose a first-round match in Russia. Law enforcement agencies around the world have grown increasingly concerned about the link between sports gambling and organized crime. The FBI and Interpol have each formed units to fight match-fixing. The United Nations has gotten involved, calling organized crime, quote, a major and growing threat to sport, unquote. The professional tennis tour receives roughly 100 match-fixing alerts a year from betting regulators who watch for patterns of suspicious wagers. That's more alerts than for any other sport, even with matches slipping under the radar, including many of the hundreds that Sargassian fixed. Since 2022, Tennis officials have banned or suspended 40 players for match-fixing, but dismantling an entire network has proved enormously difficult. The Sargassian case, when it emerged, offered rare proof of how entrenched organized crime has become on the tour. It started with $350. At the time, it was most of Sargassian's savings. He put the money in his wallet and climbed into a friend's hatchback. The Belgian countryside flashed past him. It was 2014. Sargassian was 24, a law student at the University of Brussels. He was still living with his parents. His last brush with the police, when he'd been arrested for stealing a bicycle, was a few years behind him. Now he was on his way to recruit his first professional tennis player. 
Sargassian had read about a tournament in Arlon, a small Belgian city on the Luxembourg border. He saw that the total purse for the tournament was less than $25,000, and that many of the players were journeymen who struggled to break even on the tour. Sargassian formulated his plan. He would identify a player who seemed desperate, maybe one of the men from Latin America or North Africa. Sargassian said he assumed they would be the ones most in need. He would offer the player a portion of his winnings to throw a set. The player could still win the match. Sargassian arrived at the hotel where the players were staying. He looked across the lobby and saw a crowd of professional tennis players. They were some of the world's best athletes, men whose ground strokes were as practiced and fluid as calligraphy. At their level, in almost any other major sport, they would be millionaires. He walked over to a young player from Latin America who was stringing his racket in a corner of the lobby. Years later, when Sargassian was asked whether he was nervous during his first approach, he scoffed, as if he was unfamiliar with the feeling. I don't get nervous. The hotel wasn't glamorous. With the players preparing their own gear, it had the feel of a converted locker room. The ITF tour, Sargassian would, learn, would later learn, is full of moments that invert the image most people have of tennis. Players do their own laundry to save money. Some share rooms. McDonald's is a popular post-match meal. Do you like gambling? Sargassian asked, and the player immediately seemed to know what he was talking about. They walked outside. Sargassian made his offer. He would pay the player to lose the second set of the match, Six Love. The man accepted instantly, Sargassian recalls. The odds on the match were 11 to 1. The player tanked, just as he said he would, missing even easy returns, double faulting, performatively slapping balls into the net. Sargassian walked away with nearly $4,000. He paid the player, whom he would not identify, about $600. It was an incredible feeling, he said. If there was something about the rush of competition that had almost broken him in his chess career, filling him with an overwhelming sense of losing control, fixing tennis matches felt like a renewed source of power. He immediately planned on doing it again. He gave the Latin American player a ride to his girlfriend's house along the North Sea, euphoric as they sped through the countryside. Do you know any other players who might be interested? Sargassian asked him. Oh, the player said, definitely. The message popped up on Karim Hossam's phone from an unknown Belgian number. Hey, bro. Hossam immediately knew who it was. Match fixers could sense when players were most vulnerable, most in need of cash and none of them more acutely than the man people called Gregory, who once again had timed his approach well. Hossam was desperate. He had been the 11th best junior tennis player in the world, and then the best professional player in Africa. The Egyptian was tall, with a powerful serve and a fierce forehand. His rise to stardom seemed inevitable. But by the time he was 22, in 2016, Hossam had realized how difficult it was to survive as a professional tennis player outside the world's top 100. It cost thousands of dollars to travel between tournaments. 
he had to buy his own rackets and shoes. The ITF Tour was the most common road to the sport's highest ranks. A successful young player could enter an ITF Futures Tournament one weekend and Wimbledon the next. But to Hassan, the Tour's structure had, had come to seem absurd. Even if he won a tournament, he could barely cover his expenses. Most of the time, he spent more money to play tennis than he earned. His family had bankrolled him for years, but those funds were running out. After the 2011 Arab Spring uprising in Egypt, his family's lumber plant outside Cairo had suffered. Then, in 2015, his father was diagnosed with cancer. The medical bills piled up. So when the text message arrived from the man who called himself Gregory, Hassam was frantically looking for a way to stay afloat. Sargissian had gotten Hassam's number from a Moroccan player named Yunus Rashidi, who would later break the inauspicious record for the most match-fixing offenses in the sport's history, 135 in less than 10 months. Rashidi told the Post he regrets his role in Sargissian's ring, but he said he knows other players who fixed even more matches than he did who were never caught. It's like doubling your money. It feels perfect and no one knows, Rashidi said. You think, that's it? The whole world is rose-colored. Back then, though, he was just a friend of Hassan's, another journeyman on the ITF tour who saw match-fixing as a way to stay afloat. I trusted Rashidi, and so I responded to Gregory, Hassan later said in an, in an interview. The first time in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, Sargissian asked whether Hassan would lose a set for $2,500. Hassan agreed, but he walked onto the court dizzy with dread. It felt strange to lose intentionally after a lifetime of being obsessed with winning. It felt like everyone was watching me. I felt like I was doing something wrong, like it wasn't normal. I invested my whole life in tennis. I was playing for 15 years, and then all of a sudden, I'm selling matches to get money. He looked at the chair umpire. Was it in Hassam's head, or did the umpire look suspicious? The crowd, too, seemed to stare at him askance. You're basically an actor on the court. Like if I'm losing love 30, then maybe I can play one point to make it look a little bit real and then miss the point after. After he threw his first set for Sargassian, he threw another. And then another. Grigor used to text me like, Hey, Karim, I have a really good offer for you. Do you want to lose the first set 6-1, for example, and get this amount of money? He gives you options. And then if you're a seed or you have a better ranking, obviously he gives you a better offer because everyone is betting on you to win. Sometimes Sargissian would ask him to throw a match against a much weaker player. That was particularly difficult. Obviously, if you're playing against a solid player, it's very easy to sell a match, Hassam said. I can give him short balls and make him attack, you know, like make him play more aggressive, give him easy balls. But if you're playing against someone who is just missing balls, then I have to go out of my way, you know, like I have to make a double fault. Hassam still knew Sargissian only as Gregory, the rich kid who flew across Europe to watch tennis. The two eventually met in Valencia, where Hassam was playing a tournament. Sargissian was exactly as Hassam had imagined, an impeccably dressed Belgian man in his 20s, oozing charm. 
he invited Hassam to one of the best restaurants in the city. He's just this really cool guy, Hassam later said. Easy to talk to, well-connected, generous. Hassam had met other match-fixers on the ITF circuit. Some of them were professional players who gambled on the side. There was the player from Belarus who nagged him incessantly in the locker room, the Greek player who was notorious for not paying people who threw their matches at his request. Hassam had fixed a few matches with those men, but Sargassian was different. He paid quickly in cash or moneygram transfers. He responded to messages instantly, no matter when they were sent. He seemed to know everyone. So when Sargassian proposed that Hassam recruit more players into the ring for a commission, Hassam didn't hesitate. Hassam knew many of the best players from across the developing world, most of whom faced the same financial struggles he did. At major tournaments, they watched the giants of the game walk by in the locker room. Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer, some of the wealthiest men in the history of sports, the gulf between the superstars and the journeymen felt at once narrow, a stronger serve, more consistent ground strokes, and impossibly wide. To Hassam, getting caught seemed inconceivable. He was so certain of the plan's infallibility that he decided to recruit his brother into Sargassian's ring. Yusef Hassam was four years younger and even more talented than Karim. He was relentless, dragging himself across the court to the point of exhaustion, even if he was losing. The family paid for him to train at the Muradoglu Tennis Academy in southern France with Patrick Muradoglu, Serena Williams' former coach. In 2017, Youssef's first full year playing professionally, he was immediately a star. He won five ITF tournaments, rocketing into the world's top 300. I believe I have the tennis to make the top 100. I don't see a huge gap, he told a reporter at the Australian Open in, in 2016. I will need support, not just financial, although that is important because traveling to tournaments is very expensive. Youssef had grown up worshipping his older brother, but the first time Karim broached the idea of fixing a match, Youssef recoiled, he said in an interview. I was like, what the hell is this? Still, Youssef knew that his tennis academy cost thousands of dollars a month. It was more than Youssef made, even as he surpassed his brother on the tour. With his family's finances deteriorating, Youssef realized that without an infusion of cash, he would have to quit tennis. I was like, okay, I cannot be selfish. My brother and my dad are helping me, paying that amount of money for my practice, paying for this and that. This is the least I can do, you know, to help them financially. The first time he agreed to fix a match was in Cairo in 2017. Karim explained that they could make $4,000 if Youssef lost the first set 6-2 to a much lesser player. It was enough to cover a few weeks at his training camp. It was the first time I had to step on the court and actually give like 20 or 30 percent, Youssef said. I was like, no, this is not right. But there are no options, you know, like we have zero money. If you fix this, you make money, you go practice, life goes on. If you don't fix this, we don't have money and you just stay at home. Still, Youssef struggled to lose. His opponent was weak. To throw a set, Youssef began making errors that only a novice would make. 
I would just miss, hit the forehand as hard as I could, two meters out, he said. But even then, he almost won too many games in the set. I had to do a couple extra double faults, he said. The next time Youssef threw a match was in Sharm el-Sheikh. Karim Karim walked over to the fence and beckoned his brother in the middle of a game. He had been texting with Sargissian. There was an opportunity for a fix. I'm on the court. I will ask my brother now. Karim texted Sargissian. Their father was in the ICU. Youssef was having trouble focusing. He slammed his racket on the ground. Karim came to the fence and he asked me, Bro, do you want to lose the second set? And I was like, yeah, whatever, man. I don't give a shit. I just wanted to pull out. It was a moment that would eventually bring both of their careers crashing down. Karim's courtside approach, the texts, and Yusef's dramatic loss were overwhelming evidence of their match-fixing plan. And yet, even after the brothers were caught, Sargissian, seemingly untouchable, continued building his ring. One of the first things Sargissian did with his new fortune was buy a Rolex. It wasn't just that he liked the watch, though he did. It was an investment in the image he was trying to cultivate. These players, they're obsessed with Rolex, he said. Sargissian realized that he needed to project an aura of effortlessness, of effortless generational wealth to persuade players to throw matches as he prescribed. He often wore Hugo Boss from head to toe. He learned what bottles of wine to order, which restaurants served the best langoustines, which hotel in Barcelona had the best view of the Mediterranean. <clears throat> he learned to wear the watch nonchalantly, as if he had forgotten it was on his wrist, but every move Sargistian made was calculated. When he began speaking to a recruit, he would make sure the watch was covered by, his, by a shirt sleeve. Then he would casually ensure it became visible, unveiling it so the player couldn't help but notice. Like it was nothing, Sargassian said. It was the same with his Jaguar. It's actually not as expensive as people think, he said, but it sends a message. Sargassian picked up on small details that hinted at a player's desperation. There was the French player struggling to buy a diamond engagement ring, so Sargassian paid for it. There was the Chilean player who couldn't afford to fly his mother to his wedding, so Sargissian bought the ticket. Then there were the nightclubs and the dinners. There were the purchases that he still doesn't want to discuss publicly, but that make him smile boyishly in reminiscence. Sometimes he would pay players more than he promised them. Other times, even if they failed to deliver, he would still hand them the cash. It was about keeping them happy, he said. Sargissian's face broadcast his joy in the life he had built out of nothing. He laughed easily, as if he saw levity in the world that was visible only to him. There was a kind of magnetism in that. Spending time around Sargissian was like being invited to a party that moved alongside him, insulated from consequence. Still, he learned that some players, for personal reasons, were incorruptible. Being rejected was an inevitable part of being a match-fixer. Sometimes you ask a guy how he's surviving on the tour, and he tells you his father is a billionaire, Sargissian said. In those cases, you just move on. 
Sargassian knew that tennis was full of match-fixers. His network would only grow if he was good to his roster. He often delivered the cash himself at train stations across Western Europe. In one month, authorities would later recount, he traveled between Belgium and Paris 22 times with envelopes of cash. Some players, buoyed by Sargassian's approach, encouraged him to gamble more money on their matches when the odds were good. Put a thousand more, go fast, Nadenova, the Bulgarian player, instructed Sargassian in one message in 2016. Nadenova could not be reached for comment. Nadenova's payment arrived promptly in Bulgaria by MoneyGram, addressed to her parents from a man in Armenia, according to receipts obtained by investigators. The sender was the same person who had dispatched much of Sargissian's cash around the world. His name was Andronik Martirasyan. Martirasan. Martirasyan. Martirasan. Woo! None of the players had heard of him. Most paid little attention to where the money came from, but Martirasan would turn out to be a critical figure. Belgian investigators would later write that he was in charge of the financial part of the criminal organization. Digital bank accounts linked to Martirasan would, re- would receive a significant portion of Sarg- Sargissian's bet profits, at least 9 million euros in two years, according to wire transfer receipts obtained by investigators. And yet Martirasian, who declined to comment, appears to have been working with Sargissian from an Armenian prison. In 2015, just as Sargissian was building his network, Martirasian received a six-year prison sentence for assaulting several men on the dance floor of the Kalienti nightclub in Armenia's capital, Yerevan. The official charge was hooliganism, according to court records. It's unclear how he and Sargissian met, or how Martirasian operated from prison. The two men exchanged messages constantly. Once, when Sargissian expressed concern about another criminal organization, it was Martirasian who tried to reassure him. They will threaten with words, but when it comes down to carrying out what they say, they will do nothing, he wrote in a text. No, Sargissian responded, you are mistaken. By 2017, Sargissian had set a goal for himself. He wanted the biggest match-fixing network in tennis. He dreamed of opening his own tennis club in the south of France. I asked myself, how can I industrialize this? He needed someone who could bring him not just one or two players, but an entire raft of talent. In the Netherlands, he met Sebastian Rivera, a third-generation professional player from Chile who appeared to be headed to the top tier of tennis coaching. Rivera was lean, with long black hair that he wore in a bun or under a bandana. He explained his coaching philosophy on his website. There is a difference between good players and good competitors. Rivera had secured a job with Sean Bolateri Abdali, the son of legendary coach Nick Bolateri, 
at a tennis club in Newport Beach, California. Boletari, who had coached Andre Agassi, Venus and Serena Williams, and Boris Becker, worked fre- frequently alongside his son. Rivera was in charge of training several of the program's best prospects. His coaching was incisive. He could watch someone play for a few minutes and come up with an astute diagnosis of their game. He was a really good coach. On the court, he was high energy, very strict, with a good work ethic, said Bulgateri Abdali, who managed the club. He had all of the attributes. But not long after Rivera began working at the club, Bulgateri Abdali began to suspect that something about him was off. I knew that guy was fucking trouble. Rivera seemed to know every promising young player in Latin America, which made him a major asset to the Boletari expansion efforts. It was the same network that made him vulnerable to Sargissian. When the two met in the Netherlands, they sized each other up. Sargissian had come to see tennis as a world divided between the rich and the poor. Was Rivera poor enough that he could be tempted? Rivera looked at Sargissian. The guy was super nice and polite, like a country club kid in a polo, Rivera recalled in in an interview. He looked 23 years old. He has his Rolex. He's this rich kid who says he's there to help players. Rivera listened to to Sargissian's pitch. It was the beginning of a lucrative partnership. At the Bulletary Club, Rivera asked players if they were interested in throwing matches. Between practice sessions on the pristine, palm-tree-lined courts, he asked other coaches if they were willing to recruit prospects into Sargissian's network. He would come up to us and ask, Do you want to make extra money on the side? Recalled one coach, who spoke on the condition of anonymity because he worried about angering Rivera. He wanted us to introduce him to players who trusted us. In 2017 and 2018, Rivera would bring Sargissian 34 players from the Bulletary Club and beyond, including six Americans, according to Belgian authorities, receiving at least $90,000 in commission. Their relationship is captured in hundreds of pages of text messages, later seized by investigators and provided to the Post. Seabass, tell him to say his price for the second set, Sargissian said about a singles match he wanted a player to throw. Okay, bro, Rivera said. A few messages later, after Rivera consulted with the player, the deal was done. Confirmed, Rivera wrote. The two became close, texting at all hours. Sargissian sometimes got upset with Rivera when he wasn't available in the middle of the night. Seabass, you fall asleep, he wrote, adding a sad face emoji. Like this, it is impossible to work. In the interview, Rivera came up with an elaborate explanation for his involvement. He said he was working undercover for a BBC journalist doing an investigation into match-fixing. Chris something, he said. I wish I could remember his last name. (laughs) Rivera said he maintained the relationship with Sargissian, continuing to connect him to players, so that no one would suspect he was working with a reporter to document corruption in the sport. To keep it cool, you know, he said. 
When asked about Rivera, the BBC said in a statement that it has seen no evidence to substantiate these claims. The BBC has high journalistic standards, and we have strict processes and guidelines in place that we must adhere to. In 2016, in a joint investigation, the BBC and BuzzFeed reported that several top players were suspected of fixing matches, even though they were never punished. One of the players in Rivera's circle was Dagmara Beskova, a top professional in Slovakia. She had gone pro when she was 15. On the tour, she was drawn to players who, like her, didn't come from wealth. A lot of the players, especially the Russians, come from rich families, she said. For me, tennis was an escape from life. Baskova met Rivera first in Sharm el-Sheikh and then again in Tunis. They smoked hookah in his hotel room. He started coaching her informally, and she could immediately see his talent. He can read your tennis instantly, she said. He'll tell you how to use your weapons. By 2017, when she was 26, Baskova's knee was badly injured. The surgery was more than she could afford, and even with the best medical care, she would never return to top form. She could tell her career was over. She ran into Rivera at the hotel. I told him my knee was hurting, and he said, You know, you can sell your match, she recalled in an interview. Rivera gave her three options for how badly to lose a set. Losing, she learned, was easy. For example, when I was serving, I just hit a double fault on purpose, she said. The money arrived via MoneyGram from Armenia. $10,000 for the fix. She did it again and again. By the time she was done fixing matches a few months later, she had made an effortless $50,000, she said. She dreamed of starting a tennis club in Thailand. It was the money I needed to prepare for my life beyond tennis, she said. As his network grew, Sargissian became suspicious that the police were on to him. He believed he was being followed into a pizzeria, a park where he strolled after midnight, a train station in Paris. He worried about his phones being wiretapped. Rivera could tell that Sargissian was growing more anxious. The carefully constructed veneer of wealth and in, in, in so, in so, oh, I can't say that word, and insouciance occasionally wearing thin. Sargissian would sometimes snap when players didn't lose after promising to, or when they made it obvious they were losing on purpose. When one match in Egypt went awry, Sargassian sent Rivera a flurry of threatening texts. I'm mad. The fuck I'm doing this since 3 a.m. I will break his legs. It would turn out that Sargassian's fears were not unfounded. He was being watched. The briefing took place in a conference room at the Federal Prosecutor's Office. A strange tip had arrived from Belgium's Gambling Commission. Officials had noticed irregular wagers on obscure tennis matches played around the world. The bets were made in small towns in the Flemish countryside. The gamblers appeared to be acting on inside information. They consistently won even when they bet against steep odds. At the time, the findings seemed mundane but it would later help unravel the largest match-fixing scandal in the history of tennis, 
the world's most manipulated sport, according to investigators and betting regulators. Nicolas Boromans, a 45-year-old police investigator based in the Flanders region of Belgium, looked around the conference room. He could tell that none of his colleagues wanted the case. Sports-related investigations were often dismissed as insignificant. This one, revolving around a few small wagers, was a particularly tough sell. But Bormans believed that the links between sports gambling and organized crime were strengthening in Belgium, and there was something intriguing about this set of facts. I'll take the case, he told the room. Bormans was a tall, slender man with searching blue eyes and a bald head who cycled 40 miles to and from work every day. He was the son of a cheese, cheese vendor. Boromont joined the police force at 19 and worked for years in a carjacking unit. Once, he broke up a criminal network trafficking luxury cars between the Belgian port city of Antwerp and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Boromont knew little about sports. He had never watched an entire tennis match, but even a cursory description of the case was enough for him to see how a gambling operation might be used to launder money. After the 2016 briefing, Bormans returned to his office on the second floor of a police station in Oudenaarde, a quiet medieval town an hour from Brussels. He began diagramming what was known about the bets in PowerPoint slides. Within a few months, he had traced the accounts of four men who had placed suspicious bets in Belgium, all Armenian immigrants. Their wagers were mostly small, a few hundred euros each, ostensibly to avoid scrutiny. Almost all of the bets were on low-level professional tennis tournaments, where players earned barely enough to pay for their travel. Bormans secured wiretaps on the gamblers' phones, and a team of Armenian interpreters listened in. It became clear that the gamblers were working for someone. They received detailed instructions about which matches to bet on. They weren't gambling just on the outcomes, but on specific scores for sets and games. We heard them receive orders, Boromans recalled in an interview. Someone would tell them, go now to the betting shop and place this much money on these matches. Boromans added more gamblers to his diagram. Money mules, he called them. Eventually, he would uncover 1,671 accounts at gambling establishments across Europe. Many were registered by working-class Armenians, mechanics, a pizza delivery man, a taxi driver, after months of wiretapping, Boromans began wondering whether his search for the gambling network's boss was approaching a dead end. The work was isolating. None of his colleagues seemed to care much about the investigation. He made an appointment with the judge who was overseeing the case. I told her, if we don't get new information soon, we're going to have to close this, he said. Then, in 2017, he received a promising lead. The Professional Tennis Tour, the Association of Tennis Professionals, ATP Tour, the International Tennis Federation and the Women's Tennis Association together had created its own investigation unit, hiring retired officers from London's Metropolitan Police. That unit, initially, in co initially called the Tennis Integrity Unit, was formed in part because of pervasive allegations of match-fixing in the sport. One of the Integrity Unit's first investigators was D. Bain. She was in her late 50s, a veteran of the London police. Unlike Boromans, she was a tennis fanatic who saw corruption in the sport creating what she called, quote, reputational risk. 
2017, Bain heard through a contact at Interpol that Belgian police were working on a tennis-related case. The timing was interesting. She was closing in on one of her first match-fixing targets, Karim Hassam. Bain saw that Hassam was playing in an ITF tournament in Tunisia. Every professional tennis player, including Hassam, signs a contract agreeing to hand their phones over to tennis investigators at any time if required. Bain had uncovered Facebook messages between Hassam and another player about a match-fixing plan. It was enough evidence to act against Hassam. Typically, investigators follow their target before and during a match. When the match is over, investigators make their approach, often steering the player to an office where the phone is seized and interrogators are waiting. Nobody thinks they are going to get caught, so their messages are not deleted, said Jenny Kennedy, the Integrity Unit's senior director of investigations. In Hassam's case, Bain and, and another investigator waited at the door of his hotel room for him to return from a match. They were like, can we please have your phone? Hassam recalled in an interview. I just froze. He immediately admitted that he had been fixing matches. He handed over his phone. He told interrogators he had been communicating with a match fixer named Gregory in Brussels but didn't know much about him. It would become a common thread in the investigation. Almost every account of Grigor Sargissian appeared to describe a slightly different person, adding mistaken details. A white guy with black hair, around 26 or 27, Hossam said, according to a transcript of the interrogation. He has a connection with Syria or Iran. He spends a lot of time in Barcelona and drives a Mercedes. After the interrogation, Hassam texted his brother from another number. They caught me in my room, bro, he wrote, and I was stupid. I didn't delete some things. Investigators sent Hassam's seized phone to an expert to decrypt. When it came back, Bain could see the messages that he had exchanged with a man named Gregory, along with the match fixer's cell phone number. She called Boromans and said a Belgian Max Fixer had just emerged in her investigation. He seemed to be based in Brussels and had been working with Hassam. That could be the guy I'm looking for, Boromans said. As Sargissian's legend permeated professional tennis, he had another problem to solve, how not to get caught. He did his best to remain inconspicuous. He often slept in his parents' apartment in the gentrifying St. Gilles neighborhood of Brussels, where the family had moved, even though he had his own place in the city. He took shifts at the brick storefront Polish deli where his parents worked, just underneath their apartment. He, he also urged the players he recruited to keep a low profile. He gave them SIM cards registered anonymously. He gave more detailed instructions about how players should tank their matches. Please ask him not to start with a double fault he wrote to an intermediary who had fixed a match in Casablanca, Morocco. He instructed players not to flash their newfound wealth, but they didn't always listen. One French player, after throwing a match, filmed himself tossing a pile of cash in the air at a nightclub and posted it on Instagram. Sargissian lost his composure. I told him, you idiot, people are going to start asking questions, he said in an interview. Sargissian stayed off social media. He broke up with his girlfriend when she started inquiring about his income. Once, when he thought his phone was being tapped, he told his players that he had, quote, chucked it in the sea. His mother began suspecting something was wrong. I'm worried about him, investigators would later hear her say on a wiretapped phone. I think he might be in trouble. Once, she texted him, 
I am your mother and I love you so much. Come home, my son. Mother, everything is okay, he tried to reassure her. The players, too, began to sense that something was up. One French player, Yannick Thivent, ranked 590th in the world, received 40,710 euros and 21 transfers from Armenia to his account in Skrill, a digital financial platform. Thivent, saved as THIV on Sargistian's phone, received at least an additional 15,000 euros in cash, according to receipts and messages obtained by Belgian investigators. Tyvent agreed to recruit more French players into the match-fixing ring, but he began to see that Sargassian, for all his charm, could be tempestuous. Sargassian lashed out when he thought his players were not adequately masking their thrown matches. How many times do I have to say it? Sargassian told him once. It is necessary that in the eyes of all, they play thoroughly. Sargassian's anger deepened when he heard about players leaking their plans to other fixers to make more money. I have the concrete proof that they gave the full info to another person. Sargassian, furious that one of his players was trying to double dip, wrote to Thivent. I warned you to tell them to shut up. Even paying those on his roster began to get complicated. Sargassian had begun working with Arthur de Grief, saved as L.A. Grief, in his phone, who had reached a top ranking of 113th in the world. He was a member of the Belgian Davis Cup team, coached by a former Olympian. He had defeated players in the top 20, but mostly played lower-tier ITF and ATP Challenger tournaments as he tried to break into the sport's elite tier. But when Sargissian discussed leaving 4,500 euros in DeGrieff's mailbox, the payoff for a thrown match, DeGrieff grew concerned about getting caught. Sorry, you know me, I'm paranoid, he wrote in May 2018. Sargassian, despite his own concerns, tried to reassure him. You worry too much, he wrote. Later, de Grief would tell Belgian police he never communicated with Sargassian. When investigators showed him a picture of Sargassian, de Grief said he had never seen him before. But in 32 messages found on Sargassian's phone, the pair spoke with familiarity, two men whose lives revolved around the lowest rungs of the tennis tour, an immigrant from Armenia and a member of Belgium's tennis elite. Sargassian suggested they could exchange cash on the road. Abroad would be better, de Grief agreed. Sargassian responded with his itinerary. I'll be in Marseille, Barcelona, Monaco. Boramins now had the match fixer's number from Hassam's phone, the one saved under Gregory. But when he ran the number, there was no name attached to it. Boramins poured through Gregory's call records and noticed that he had been speaking with a German tennis player. Boramins then saw that, according to the phone's geolocation, Gregory had left Brussels for Berlin not long after the conversation. Boramins checked flight records from that day to see whether any of the names from his growing list of Armenian gamblers appeared on the manifest. There was one hit, Grigor Sargassian. Boramins wrote the name on the PowerPoint diagram next to the word maestro. I was walking on clouds, he said. In mid-2017, Boramans launched an, an undercover surveillance team of 10 people. He dressed in blue jeans and a sweater, joining the team to watch Sargissian from a distance. They monitored Sargissian's movements through a telephoto lens and, in one instance, saw him accept a bag stuffed with cash that had just arrived in Brussels from Armenia. The police tracked Sargissian's almost daily trips to Paris, 
where he ducked into restaurants near the Gare de Lyon and Gare de Nord train stations to pay off his players. His phone's search history would later offer a glimpse into his life and concerns. Sargissian scoured the internet for references to himself and his players. Maestro Tennis, match-fixing tennis Hassan. He did some broader research into his world, tennis corruption, Armenian mafia. He searched for ways to spend his new fortune, escort Geneve, villa rent close port Mallorca. But mostly he searched for new bookmakers, Croatia betting shop, USA betting, my bet Australia. Boromans began adding the names of Sargissian's players to his diagram. The network revealed itself to be a global operation. Eventually, Boromans would count more than 180 players from more than 30 countries. Some of the most important players were French. Boromans knew he wouldn't be able to prosecute them in a Belgian court, so he contacted French authorities. French police launched their own investigation, eventually interrogating eight professional players. One of those... Mick Lescure, saved as Mickey in Sargassian's phone, was living with his parents on the outskirts of Paris. His tennis career appeared to be over. When he was interrogated by police, he opened up. Referring to Sargassian only as Maestro, he described him as a man in his 30s, of medium height, quite corpulent, with short brown hair, bearded of Middle Eastern appearance, according to a police transcript. He has no particularly distinguishing features. The officers listened as Lesquire spoke of the scale of his involvement. Since 2015, I estimate that I have attempted to deliberately lose or manipulate the outcome of 20 to 30 matches for Maestro, both in singles and doubles, he said. But another comment from Lesquire was more revealing, underscoring how Sargissian retained his players' loyalty even as his network began to implode. He became a friend, Lesquire said. Almost two years after he took on the case, Bormans walked into the command center at the police station in Udenard. It was June 5, 2018. For days, he had been meeting with police units across Belgium to prepare for Sargissian's arrest and the takedown of the match-fixing network, the intervention, he called it. By then, the same officers who had initially shrugged off the case had heard about Bormans' work. It was incredible what he had done, almost entirely by himself, said Guy Rinenberg, a head of the Belgian police's sports crime unit. He had nicknamed Bormans the Bulldog. Bormans oversaw the operation from Oudenard while armed units across the country set off to make arrests. On their list were 28 people. 21 of them, including Sargissian, were suspected of involvement in illegal gambling and paying players to fix matches. The seven others were Belgian players, according to uh, including De Grief. The police got to Sargissian's parents' apartment at 6.30 a.m. They were prepared to break down the front door, but one of the officers turned the handle. It was open. Sargissian's father was sleeping in the living room. His mother was asleep in the third-floor bedroom. After spotting Sargissian through an open door, the officers sprinted up the stairs to his room. Above the bed was an astronaut figurine and medals from chess championships. His phones were on the nightstand, just out of reach. The officers noticed the devices immediately. One officer nearly collided with Sargissian as both raced toward the nightstand, but Sargissian came up short. The officers placed the phones in an evidence bag and put their target in handcuffs. We knew our timing was perfect, Boromans said. We knew those phones had the information we wanted. 
Sargassian was taken to a prison in Bruges, about 60 miles northwest of Brussels. A little over a week later, Boromans arrived to question him. They shook hands and chatted casually for a few minutes. He's the kind of guy you want to get a drink with, Boromans said. Then Boromans turned to his questions. Why had Sargassian done this? What was his relationship to criminal figures in in Armenia? He said nothing, Boromans said. He just smiled. You could tell that this was a person who was not ashamed about what he had done. For him, it's not a crime. It's being smart. It's using information. Sargissian remained in jail for 10 months in 2018 and 2019. His sister brought him a copy of Fyodor Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment in the original Russian. Reading it, he reflected on his own crime, once again regarding himself as the hero of his own narrative. Honestly, it made me proud of what I'd done, he said. He was released in advance of his trial, which was delayed until 2023 by bureaucratic issues and then the coronavirus pandemic. In the meantime, Boromans traveled to Miami and Los Angeles to meet with the FBI about the alleged role of Sebastian Rivera, the Chilean coach based in the United States, and some U.S.-based players suspected of involvement in the match-fixing operation. He brought along a memo from the Belgian judge assigned to the investigation. To the competent judicial authorities of the United States of America, it began. It named eight tennis players living in the United States as appearing to be part of Sargassian's network along with Rivera. The judge requested that Rivera's home be searched and that he be interrogated. Rivera turns out to be a very important person having an intense cooperation with Sargassian, the letter said. Sitting across from the FBI agents, Bormans sensed that they weren't interested in the investigation. The Americans interrogated Rivera, but that's where the case ended. A senior FBI official said in an interview that the agency reviewed the case as a courtesy to the Belgian police, but he would not comment on the details. There was no separate U.S. investigation, said the official, who spoke on the condition of anonymity because he was not authorized to comment publicly on the case. Boromans had more luck in Europe. Slovakian authorities raided the home of Dagmara Baskova, one of Rivera's recruits. They handed her a document explaining the charges against her. I asked the officers, can I go to jail? She recalled in an interview, and they said that I could. She said she lied to authorities about the total amount of money Sargissian had paid her, claiming it was 1,500 euros a match instead of 10,000, allowing her to avoid fraud charges. But in the interview, she acknowledged that she was paid 10,000 euros for each thrown match, as the Belgian investigation showed. Everybody thinks that I'm so dumb that I sold them only for 1,500 euros, she said with a laugh. But it was not for 1,500 euros. Beskova is now a tennis coach based in Austria. In France, authorities briefly detained and questioned four players, including Lescure and Tyvent. So far, none of them have been charged. Lesquire is a tennis coach at an academy in Beijing, while Tyvent plays club tournaments across France. Neither player responded to requests for comment. Recognizing how little players earn at the sport's lowest tiers, the ATP Tour last month announced, announced a pilot program offering a minimum wage for men and women in the top 250. The Tour called it a significant step towards ensuring a greater number of players can make a sustainable living 
from the sport. As part of the initiative, players ranked between 176 and 250 would be guaranteed $75,000 a year. While still not enough, wrote Australian player Nick Kyrgios on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. The tennis tour has in recent months issued a raft of bans and suspensions. Yunus Rashidi, the Moroccan player who recruited Hassam, was banned for life for the highest number of offenses by one individual ever detected, the tour wrote in a news release. I don't even know where my racket is, Rashidi said in an interview. The sport has been ruined for me. Lescure and Alexandrina Nadanova, a Bulgarian player, also were banned for life. So was Rivera, who now lives in Las Vegas, where he offers private tennis lessons. The ban, he said, has made it harder to find work. Biscova was suspended for 12 years and fined $40,000. Both Karim Hassam and his younger brother Youssef, whom he brought into the ring, were banned for life too unable to play or coach on the tour, or even attend professional tournaments. In its 2020 ban of Yosef, the Tennis Integrity Agency said he conspired with other parties to carry out an extensive campaign of betting-related corruption at the lower levels of professional tennis. Yosef is on the professional paddle tennis tour alongside other members of Sargissian's ring. Karim coaches youth tennis in Cairo. When the tennis tour announced their suspensions, it made no mention of Sargissian. The scale of his network has remained a secret until now, in part because the tour is still working on active investigations related to the operation, many of them led by Bain. It wasn't until late April of this year that Sargissian arrived in Udenard for his hearing, along with most of the 27 gamblers and tennis players who were part of his network in Belgium. The court is in a Gothic-style building on the bank of the Scheldt River. Sargissian sat near the front of the courtroom. Mathieu Bert, a lawyer representing professional tennis, described in his opening remarks how match-fixing takes away the essence of the sport and invites organized criminals into tennis. And then he turned to Sargissian, describing the scale of his network, which was larger than any other match-fixing ring in the history of professional tennis. Biggest in size, biggest in money, and biggest in number of matches fixed and number of players involved, Barrett said. More than 181 tennis players are involved. More than 375 matches are involved. Sargissian, in a blue sweater, a, bl a blue button-down shirt and jeans, sported an almost indiscernibly sly smile. De Grief, who had been provisionally suspended by the tour, sat on the same bench as Sargissian and other Belgian players. When he took his, the stand, he denied his role in the ring. I've been playing tennis since I was five years old. I spent about 20 years training and getting to the level I was at. I always gave everything for the matches I played, he said. De Grief declined multiple interview requests. He was found guilty of fraud and working with a criminal organization. When the judge called Sargissian's name, he approached the bench with his attorney, Dimitri Marguerite. Neither denied Sargissian's role in the network, but Marjorie alluded to Adrianik Martirisian, the Armenian whose bank account had received millions of euros from Sargissian's winnings, according to prosecutors. This is a man who I don't think has ever been heard, Marjorie said, adding that Martirisian was a sort of 
pivotal figure in this whole thing. But Matirisyan, 35, was still in Armenia. When the Washington Post visited his home outside Yerevan, the Armenian capital, it was freshly renovated with beige limestone. A new truck sat in the driveway. His wife said she would ask Martirisian if he was willing to be interviewed, but he refused. Belgian authorities told the Post they wanted their own case to conclude before pursuing his arrest. The judge paused and then looked at Sargassian. Do you wish to add anything of your own? I want to turn the page and live a more just life, Sargassian responded. When Sargassian walked out of the courtroom, a Washington Post journalist approached him. How did he feel about the proceedings? Sargassian couldn't help himself. If the prosecutor knew what I know, there would be many more people on trial, he said. About two months later, the judge held a sentencing hearing. This time, Sargassian wore a black t-shirt and jeans. Some members of the prosecution were bracing for a light sentence, thinking the judge might see the case as unserious because it involved sports. She read the verdict aloud. The court sentences Grigor Sargassian to a prison sentence of five years. He was convicted of leading a criminal organization, money laundering, and fraud. Sargassian was told to report to a Belgian prison on August 11th to begin his sentence. Sargassian's expression went blank. After court ended, Sargassian returned to his parents' apartment above the Polish deli. He had resumed work there, hauling boxes of pickled cucumbers from the shop's front stoop as his mother yelled instructions from inside. It was the same job he had done before his match-fixing career took off. He went straight upstairs to the bedroom where the idea for his empire was born. He pulled out his phone and began composing an email about the verdict and what it meant for him. A tragic end to this adventure, he wrote. Uh, Daniel, um, I'm not sure how long after a match like that you analyse it, if you do. I just wonder whether you have or whether you think you'll have any regrets about the second set at all. Oh, regrets for sure. Um, should have won it, should have won it, but uh, sometimes tennis is not that easy. Uh, passing for sure down the line, not cross, but uh, you know, you have two, two choices and I chose the wrong one. Um, in general, yeah, second set was the best set I played and I didn't win it, so that's why kind of, I would say uh, it's normal that the match went the, that way because first and third, uh, he was kind of better and not much to say. Second, if I would win it, maybe could have been a different game. I don't know if I would analyze it because, again, when we play the next time, it's going to be a different story, so I'm not even sure there is anything much to analyze. But, uh, yeah, that's... That's how life is in tennis is, so I'm going to try to be better next time. Okay. Matt. Hey, Daniel. Matt Futterman with the New York Times. Did you, um, and when you're playing that second set and you're seeing him gasping for breath and wobbling on his feet, are you thinking, okay, you know, I've jarred him, I've, you know, hit him in the jaw, he's, he, he's, he's weak right now, or are you thinking that's Novak Djokovic, I've seen him do this before and doesn't mean anything right now? Yeah, it's kind of both because he was tired. He was missing some shots uh, after at the end of some long rallies, 
And at the same time, uh, as you said, that's Novak. So uh, no matter what, he can be there. It's kind of the same like when we played with Rublev. We were both, we, we could barely stay. And then the points were unbelievable. <laughs> so that's kind of, uh, kind of the same. Uh, that's why I also for sure pity that I didn't win the second set because I felt like I was, uh, um, let's call it all over him. Like I was dominating in a way and uh, just uh, should have done better, uh, was a little bit stubborn on return. I should have probably changed my position and stuff like this, but I had the feeling that it's going to work uh, like this and I'm going to make it work because I was a little bit returning worse than, let's say, with Carlos. And when the set was over, I was like, yeah, I was too stubborn. I should have done differently, but that's, you know, that's how, again, that's how tennis is, you know, back and same, back and not cross, but down the line, the set is over. But sometimes uh, it's tough. So, yeah. Okay. David. Hi, Daniel. David King, Tennis.com. You mentioned the Rublev match, and obviously that was very physical, tough conditions, very physical against Carlos. How physically prepared were you coming into the match? Tough to say because basically starting with the Minar match after Bayes match, which was, which was physical, I was feeling not at 100% physically every match but still managed to play amazing and win amazing matches. And sometimes in Grand Slam, you're not going to feel 100% and you still may win the, the whole thing. So, uh, you know, he was, as we say, he was second set also struggling. Um, I had small pain on my, I mean, the pain was growing during the match, but doesn't even matter. That's not why I, why I lost it. So for sure, physically, I would like to come better to this match. But if you play Carlos in the semifinals, you know that physically it's going to be a tough one. So there is no other choice and you still want to win and just uh, had to be better uh, physically, mentally and tennis-wise. Candy. Candy Rodo from La Vanguardia, Spain. I wonder what uh, the difference in your level was uh, from your point of view from the Carlos match till today match and what made that difference? Yeah, I played a bit worse for sure especially first set and third it's tough to say after the second set it might have been the consequence of the way the match was going so the third the first set was a little bit pity because I didn't play good in my opinion and the second set I would kind of say I probably played like with Carlos and that's why we started to have this uh, really arm wrestling uh, points and games um, and just, uh, yeah, as I say, if I wanted to win the match, I had to win the set. Um, so why? Because it's not easy to, to repeat. Because against Carlos, I played one of best matches of my life. I mean, against Novak here two years ago, it's kind of on this, in the same category. And it's not that easy to repeat it day in, day out. Uh, and for sure, I tried. And that's why second set, I managed to raise my level. But uh, was not enough. Simon. Uh, Simon Briggs, Daily Telegraph. It felt like the serve and volley for Djokovic was kind of the key. Could yeah. You, mm, you wanted to continue. You, you, you didn't make many points when you did it. True. And uh, that's what I was saying, that I probably should have been less stubborn and changed my position because I tried to change uh, in my mind what I was doing on return, like either going a little bit uh, higher, lower, line, cross. And I just didn't manage to, uh, to put the ball in the court many times or to put the ball where I wanted to. So that was the difference with Carlos. I managed to, to be good returning from far and that's what I'm good at. I don't really care too much if the guy is serving in volley. It makes it a little bit tougher, but he has to do it good. 
and Novak, first of all, does it good, so that's the first part. And then the second part is that uh, I didn't manage to to return well enough, and I don't want to say because of him, it was more uh, of myself, and I should have been less stubborn and uh, go uh, forward uh, earlier in the match because I only started doing it a little bit in the third set, but the match was a different story. Andrew. Andrew Jones, ESPN, Anscape, Danelle first, a well anniversary to you and your wife on Thanks. that note there. Um, when you were able to break him for the first time in the third set and get the 3-2, the whole thoughts process and then with that next game and how that was tough to take there, and do you wish um, that it was going to be a warm day and him not needing the roof with how he served his bestest tournament against Shelton and then against you? Your thoughts on that there? Yeah, first of all, about the warm, uh, I don't know. I I generally, I feel like I struggle a lot when it's warm, but I generally feel like I win more matches So because both of you struggle. But at the same time, it, honestly, when it's a Grand Slam final, it doesn't really matter and should not affect uh, you. So I don't want to go into this too much. Um, what was the other one? Sorry, I forgot. When you were able to break him for the first ah, time yes. and then um, the next game. Yeah, was a good moment because that's what happens sometimes. You know, second set was up and down. I could have won. He breaks me. We kind of think, you know, maybe the match is over, but I'm like, I have to fight till, till the last point. And I managed to break back in my mind. I'm like, let's go for it. Come on. But I didn't manage to... to raise my level as in the second set. Was it because... I think physically I was a little bit tired also. And he kind of maybe sensed this victory, so physically he managed to step up. So in my mind I was thinking that I have to continue this physically uh, physical battle, but I actually didn't manage to in the third set. And that's why I started to miss a little bit more, a little bit uh, worse decisions for sure. Yeah, a lot of regrets, but uh, at the same time, uh, he, what, 24 other finalists, uh, 23 other finalists. No, I, I played him. Anyway, many more guys have a lot of regrets playing him in the final of a slam. Okay, last question. Hi, Sarah Taylor, New York Beacon. Um, when you felt like you injured your elbow, how big of an impact was that? Yeah, when I felt nothing. Uh, though, uh, actually, when the moment I fell, I was like, man, uh, this could have uh, been not, not dangerous, but I could have hurt myself. So for maybe 30 seconds, one minute, I was like, does it hurt, does it not hurt? It was the other problem I had. In the third set, it was growing, growing, growing. And at the same time, again, that's how tennis is. Maybe I win the second set and I don't think about uh, the other problem I had. Uh, the pain goes uh, less. And when you lose it, the pain uh, goes up. So again, I definitely didn't lose uh, because I had a small pain on my left shoulder. The final time, straight sets, three hours and 17 minutes. Magnificent. Let's go to the audience to take the questions. Uh, name and affiliation, I apologize beforehand. I will not get to everybody. I will do the best I can in the time that we are presented. <coughs> questions. Hey, Novak. Congratulations, Vinay from Inside Tennis. Thank you. Uh, talk about being the perfect comeback kid ever. Uh, you came back in Australia, won Adelaide and the Australian Open. You came here to the United States, won Cincinnati and the U.S. Open. So just what is it about you that makes it so much easier to make all these like difficult comebacks in all these moments? Uh, I wouldn't say probably it was easy. Um, 
easier comparing to what exactly? We don't know because <laughs> I don't, I don't think uh, too many players were in that position. But uh, yeah, I, 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 I guess uh, people love comeback stories. I, I love them too. You know, they motivate me. Um, obviously, um, different circumstances, uh, Australia and here. I haven't played any tournament on American soil for two years, and the last time I was here, I lost in the finals against the same player I beat today. And, um, you know, I, I really did my best in the last 48 hours not to allow um, the importance of the moment and what's on the line get to my head. Because two years ago, that's what happened, and I underperformed, and I wasn't able to be at my best, and I was outplayed. So I learned my lesson, and... Um, <clears throat> My my team, my family knew <laughs> that the last 24 hours don't 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 touch me, don't speak to me about you know the history or what's on the line. You know I I really did my best to um, keep things quite simple and stick to the routines that brought me to where I am and treat this match really as any other match where I just need to win. But of course you know uh, lots of different thoughts going through your head. Um, what if what if scenarios you know images uh, that you have in your mind of you know what will look like if you win and and also if you lose you know so i'm trying to block those ones um but uh yeah it was it was a big battle i think within uh in the last 24 hours to really just you know keep things um simple and clear and prepare for this match in the right way <clears throat> which i think i've done i, I started match really well um, I'll just keep talking because I guess you know, these are questions are related to this. Uh, what probably made the difference in the key of the match was second set, almost two hours. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever played a longer set in my life, uh, particularly not on this occasion against a, a top player like, like Danilo. Yeah, I think he was uh, probably a better player in the second set. He deserved to win that set more than I did. Um, somehow I managed to... Uh, Turn things around in the tiebreak, uh, and you know when it mattered, I put uh, uh, one ball in the play more than he did, and that was enough. Um, and then you know after that uh, <clears throat> set break, I, I felt uh, I regained my energy. So the third set was, I felt better than I did in the second. Honestly, in the second, I I, I felt like you know I, I was losing air on so many occasions in my legs as well. I just I don't recall being so exhausted after rallies, really, uh, as I have been in the second set. Uh, but, you know, again, that's the occasion. That's when you play, you know, Daniil, who um, is, you know, one of the best players in the world in making you play always an extra shot. Um, and he has a big serve he, when he hits his pot and he puts pressure on your service games and on and on it goes, you know, it's like a never-ending story, really. Um, and so I, I was very, very relieved to win the second set. And then, you know, I was just praying that he, you know, he's going to miss the last ball in the match point. I was not thinking about celebrations or anything like that. It was just about uh, really uh, winning the match and then hugging the my daughter and son, my wife, parents, you know, closest people uh, that were here. Uh, as my family and my team, that that's that was what I wanted to do first, you know, to, to share these emotions with them. Larry. Uh, Novak, congratulations. Winning seven of the last ten uh, Grand Slams you, you've participated since 21, 
I'm wondering, did you make any adjustments going into that year? Was there any change when you went into 21 that, that has allowed you to go on this surge? Uh, there are always changes um, happening, uh, literally on a weekly to monthly basis uh, in my approach to training, to recovery, to mental training. Uh, there's always something that I'm trying to add so that I can uh, up my performance in my game, uh, you know, at least for a few percent. Um, and it's, it's a constant process of trying to get better and trying to implement certain things that work for you and, and finding that formula. And when you find it, you know, the biggest I feel like, um, one of the biggest lessons I've, I've learned probably mentally throughout my career is that, you know, even if you find a formula that works, uh, it's not a guarantee and actually most likely it's not going to work the next year. Uh, you need to reinvent yourself uh, because everyone else does. Uh, and as a 36-year-old competing with 20-year-olds, uh, I probably have to do it more than I have ever done it in order to keep my body in shape, in order to be able to recover uh, so that I can perform on the highest level consistently, and also mentally and emotionally to still keep the right balance between motivation so that I'm... I'm actually inspired and motivated to play the best tennis and to compete with these guys and to actually not let go in the moments when I maybe can. Um, and, 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 and at the same time, uh, keep the playfulness and, uh, and, and passion for the sport because, uh, you know, I can be very, uh, how can I say, down on myself uh, and, and go into really high stress moments, you know, on the practice days or matches and, you know, you spend a lot of energy, but I'm, I, I guess, you know, maybe you can call my, me perfe perfectionist. I mean, I know I'm, I'm not, I know I'm not the only one. I know there's a lot of great champions in different sports that, that th thrive on this kind of approach to, to, to perfect themselves, their approach, their game, their performance, their recovery every single day, uh, on and on. I mean, that's why LeBron James still keeps going at his age, you know, or Tom Brady or, you know, greats like that, um, that are inspiring. So um, that's, basically, that's basically it. You know, it's a, a constant evolving process of me trying to implement certain things that will give me an edge over the young guns. Willie. Willie Weinbaum from ESPN. Congratulations. When you lost at Wimbledon, some people wondered, was this the start of a passing of the torch? How did that match affect your thought process and your performance since? Well, I mean, people like to talk, obviously. Uh, so there's a lot of, uh, lot of different opinions out there. I mean, uh, I don't, it's not, not my interest and neither business to, to really uh, review what everyone talks about or, or thinks, um, whether there's a passing of a torch or new gen, next gen, future gen, or whatever you want to call it, happening or not happening in the sport. But I, um, you know, I focus on, on what I need to do and how I get myself in an optimal state so that I could win the trophies, the biggest trophies in our sport. So that's, that's what I care about. Um, and, 
it's great for our sport that I have very good rivalries with Alcaraz, no doubt. You know, he's uh, such a refreshment for, for tennis and uh, great, great player, amazing player and great, great guy as well. So um, I think, you know, collectively we all want more attention and interest going towards the tennis. So the more people get uh, <coughs> involved with tennis in whatever shape or form, the better it is for all of us. Uh, but look, in the end of the day, uh, my goal was always at the beginning of the season to try to win all Grand Slams. Uh, you know, I would definitely sign right away the paper if somebody told me you would win three out of four and play Wimbledon finals. Um, <laughs> there is a little regret that I didn't win that Wimbledon finals, but look, uh, in, in the end of the day, I, I, you know, I have so much more to be happier and content with than, than actually to regret something. So um, I'm going to keep going. And, you know, I feel good in my own body. I still feel I got the support of my environment, of my team, of my family. Uh, Grand Slams, I have vocalized that in the last few years, have been always the highest goal and the priority of mine in, this, in the whole season. I don't play as much, so I try to, in terms of other tournaments, so I try to, you know, prioritize my preparation so that I can peak in the slams and... Yeah, these these are these are the moments and these are the kind of uh, emotions that I uh, motivate myself with uh, every single day when I'm not playing a tournament and yeah, occasionally asking myself why do I need this still at this stage after all I've done, you know, how long do I want to keep going? I do have these questions in my head, of course, uh, but knowing that I play. At such a high level, still, and I win the biggest tournaments in a sport. Yeah, I don't want to get uh, rid of this sport, or I don't want to leave this sport if I'm still at the top. You know, if I'm still playing the way I'm playing. Matt. Hey, um, how does this uh, dominant year compare with your other dominant years when you were going when you were going up against Roger and Rafa and Andy mainly? Uh, in terms of playing them and, you know, you had such distinct rivals then and then playing this crew where it's, you know, a different, a, a different yeah. opponent yeah. four times. Four, four times different opponent, you're right, yeah. I mean, it's, it's different because the rivalries that I had with these guys were so strong and solid that uh, it was a very high probability that I'll face either Roger or Rafa <laughs> or Andy um, in, in the finals of a slam. Uh, for most of those years, uh, when when we were, you know, facing each other at the at the, at the highest of, of the levels, nowadays that's that's different. Um, I don't mind <laughs> uh, playing playing different players in the slams as long as I win. Um, and but I did play three epic matches with Alcaraz this year, and I think that's why there's a discussion or debate on on the next rivalry. You know. Uh, and I, I said all I needed to say in, in a positive way about Carlos. I do really mean it. And I think it's great that for our sport that we have another very good rivalry. I mean, I know he has also a great rivalry with Sinner. And you have Rune, you have these guys. You have, of course, generation of Zverev, Tsitsipas, um, Medvedev. You know, these guys that are still at the top five, top ten in the world. So they are great players. You know, I think uh, judging by the attendance of people and all slams and you know the, the the kind of a hype that goes around the grand slams tennis is still in a good place um, you know players come and go it will be the same kind of destiny for me you know 
eventually one day I'll, I'll leave tennis in about 23, four years. Uh, and, uh, and there's going to be new young players coming up. So Brian. until then, you'll, I guess you'll see me a bit more. Brian. Brian Lewis, New York Post. Uh, you talked about blocking out the magnitude of the moment that you may not have been able to do here um, two years ago. I'm curious, what exactly did you feel? I mean, was it relief? Was it joy? I mean, what was going through your mind at that moment? After the last point? Yeah. A relief, uh, mostly. Um, that's why I didn't, yeah, I don't know, I didn't celebrate maybe as I did in Roland Garros or didn't fall to the floor or jump out of joy or I just I'm so relieved when I saw his forehand in the net and um, out of respect I wanted to go you know quicker to the net to to uh, shake hands and uh, exchange words uh, and then the next thing I wanted is to hug my daughter because she was there sitting in the front row I didn't know that she's going to be seated there uh, we had uh, way too many people for two little seats in the player box. And so, yeah, my wife was taking care of that with my team. I didn't know who's going to sit where. And then uh, when I got to the court, I saw her. She was facing me uh, when I was sitting on the bench. And she smiled at me every single time I needed, um, I guess, that kind of uh, innocent innocent child energy, I got it from her. You know, when I was going through the very stressful moments, and particularly in the second set, when I needed a little bit of a, of a push, of a strength, of a kind of a, uh, yeah, just light, light, lightness, I guess. Um, she, she gave me a smile, she gave me a fist bump, and she was into it, you know, it's so, so, so funny to see that, and so interesting to see that she's six years old, you know, my son is nine, and they were both there, they're both aware of what's happening, and when I became a father, that was uh, one of my wishes, you know, that, they, that I will live the day to experience winning a slam in front of them and they realize what's going on, that they're old enough to understand what's going on. So, uh, yeah, I'm just uh, super blessed that that was the case twice this year in front of them in Paris and, and also here. Okay, we have time for two more in English, Howard and then Darcy. And Novak, Howard Fendrich with the Associated Press. Was there an event, a moment, something where you thought to yourself that you wanted to target 24 or 25 because of the significance of those numbers? And then later, was there a moment where you did say to yourself, okay, I can get there? And then finally, I think we all want to know, are you now a full-time servant volleyer? <laughs> uh, okay, so... Um I said on the court that my childhood goal was to win Wimbledon and be, be number one in the world. So that when I realized that, then obviously I had to set new goals and kind of because goals are important, you know, to motivate you so that you have clarity in your preparation, your day to day. What do you do on a daily, on a weekly basis in order for you to actually reach the destination where you're headed? I think that's super important for every athlete. Um, so I was setting new goals higher and higher and higher as my career progressed. Um, <clears throat> but to be honest with you, I was probably not thinking uh, so intensely and concretely about the history of the weeks at number one or most slams until maybe three years ago. Um, and then I realized, okay, uh, I'm quite, quite close for weeks at number one. 
you know, and I also have a pretty good chance at, at the Grand Slams if I if I keep healthy and if I am playing well. Uh, of course, the slams at that point was seemed a, a little bit uh, less reachable than than weeks at number one, but I believed I believed that I, I'll make it, um, and I don't put any number uh, right now in my mind on how many slams I want to win until the end of my career. I don't really. I don't really have any number. Uh, I'll, I'll continue to prioritize them as my most important tournaments and where I want to play the best tennis. So that will not change. That will stay the same in the next season or I don't know how many more seasons I have in my legs. So let's see. Okay, final question in English, Darcy. Hi, Novak. Darcy made from ESPN.com. Congratulations. You just talked about this. You talked about on the court, your childhood dream was winning a Wimbledon title. You are at 24. What do you think that seven or eight year old version of you would think if you knew you were going to win 24 years? At that point, that was definitely not the dream. Um, I think I was I was already shooting very far uh, as a seven year old, dreaming of Wimbledon and, and number one in the world. I mean, that was already uh, you know incredibly high ambition uh, for someone coming from a family with no tennis tradition. From for a boy in Serbia going through sanctions, embargo, war, torn country, uh, and being part of the uh, you know very expensive and unaffordable, unaccessible sport. So, you know, the odds were pretty much against me uh, and my family. But uh, you know, we did it, and I say we because I, I owe a lot to my to my family, to my parents who sacrificed so much, you know, for for me to be here. Uh, and it's not a cliche. It really, <laughs> I really mean it. I mean that it was extremely, extremely difficult with lots of adversities that they had to face, and atrocities that, when you think about it, you know the last thing you want to think about is, you know, supporting maybe your child in in expensive sport. It was it was more about bringing the bread to the to the kitchen table, you know, at that point. Um, so. Reflecting on on the whole journey, it's it's been a, an incredible incredible ride, and uh, that we all can be very proud of. And this kind of uh, upbringing, really, and experiences I had in childhood, really uh, allows me to appreciate this moment or any other moment that I experienced big moments in, in you know in my career in the history of this sport. Um, and I wasn't at that point, as I said, dreaming of making that kind of history because it, it seemed to be really far off, uh, far far away, sorry. Uh, but yeah, but maybe three, four years ago, I, I started to believe that, you know, I have a pretty good shot, pretty good chance, and, and yeah. Okay. Thank you, everyone. That concludes the English portion of the Thank press you. conference. Serbian, please. Thank you. Please stay in your seats. There's too Thank many you. people. Okay. Thank you so much. All right, folks. That's all I got. I've been talking for so long, I've kind of talked myself out. Even, even me, I have now talked myself out. The longest episode in podcast history again. Thank you for listening to the end. Please download the podcast. Please download older episodes. And please download future episodes. This is kind of a mark of the end of the season here. There's going to be more episodes in the fall, but this feels like a season finale to me. So thank you for listening to this point. Once again, 
Novak Djokovic and Coco Goff are your winners. Except I wasn't laughing Under the circumstances I've been shockingly nice You want your vacay? Take it That's what I'm counting on I used to want you beat But now I only want you gone You don't give up easy I tried to give it all back With double faults and errors and two quick play The crowd was all for you Nobody clapped for me, sob It's such a shame their guy got beat In four tough sets You've got your long flight home left That's what I'm counting on I'll let you get right to it Now I only want you gone Good- <laughs>